0: I wanna welcome you to the next in the 67 steps. Remember what this is, principles for you to change your habits, uh, get the dreams back, the hopes if they've died out, get them uh, revving up on full cylinders or all cylinders again. So today I call this, you know, this is related to my years living with the Amish when I was in my early 20s. So this is called Sam Chup and making, watching, wondering moving beyond the three types into just the two types. So, you know, I lived with the Amish uh, for two, about two and a half, three years, and um, learned a tremendous amount from them. If you don't know who they are, they're not Mormons. People confuse them. Um, they're not a cult. They're just basically a group of people, long time ago came from Europe, Germany, and settled in the United States, Pennsylvania, Ohio, the basically central, northern, eastern part of the United States and they still live old-fashioned so they still dress like they did 200 years ago it's part of their they're Christians but it's part of their understand their denomination so they um, don't use electricity they don't have cars they don't go on airplanes pretty traditional in fact they're not that different than everybody was about 150 years ago so I went there for many reasons I was you know I've always been an experimenter Trying to find uh push you know push the boundaries, and I wanted to also know what the world was like a couple hundred years ago, and I found that, and I learned many things from the Amish, but today, in this sixty seven step, one of the big takeaways and this isn't necessarily a saying that that an Amish person came up with, but it's the first time I ever heard it. I was living with a guy in Virginia, southeast Virginia, in a little town um kind of near if you know Virginia, near Wytheville, Virginia, uh, and near Blacksburg. His name was Sam Chupp. He's one of the nicest, most gracious, uh, selfless people I've ever met. And I live with him and his six kids and his wife, um, and he had built a log cabin, lived in the community. And uh, best years of my life so far, you know, I've had everything. I've lived in Beverly Hills, and now I'm Hollywood Hills, and Ferraris, and Maseratis, and Lamborghinis, and all that stuff. But kind of like Bob Marley said, you know, money can't buy life. So life, a good life, comes from these four pillars: health. You do need some wealth. Even the Amish work and make money, Uh, but it's not the hundred percent focus. It should be the twenty-five percent focus. You know, four pillars: health, wealth, love, fulfillment, or happiness. So I was with him one time and he was a carpenter and I don't remember what we were talking about, but he said to me, he said, you know, Ty, three types of people in the world. The first makes things happen. The second watches things happen. And the third wonders what happened. And now he said it as a joke. He was being funny, tongue in cheek, but think about life, think about your life. Now, if you go back to some of the first 67 steps, if you remember back with me for a second, we talked about this worth a damn factor that I learned. you know that's one of the primary pillars of this 67 steps is your level of awareness has to come up. People when you separate the other 67 steps talk about rich friends, poor friends. difference between rich friends and poor friends is oftentimes you know just literally what the awareness level is. Poor people and I don't mean just poor in money. I mean poor in life. They're just going through life. I call it zombies chasing mirages. Now, as we talk about this today, it's related to that, but I want you to understand that there's these three, let's call them modalities of life, okay? So the first modality is, and you will, fl- you will move in different modalities depending on the situation which you find yourself, whether you're a parent, married, own your own business or work for somebody else. You're gonna have to move like Casanova's chameleon. I talk about that a lot for those of you who are in the more advanced business stuff, closing the sale, persuasion techniques. It's all about this. Can you um, move to the appropriate modality? So the problem is there's this third modality and it's a false modality. It's a modality that really there's no reason for you to ever be in yet it's the default state of the masses of people. It's the default state of the crowd and that is to wonder what happened. If you don't believe me, go out and ask somebody something. Go out, ask. Just sit in a room with somebody, somebody you know, somebody at work. Just look around you and ask them things. So I remember when I was a little kid, I was two or three, my grandfather was a scientist in San Diego, California, and I was just sitting in front of a fireplace. He, he at that point wasn't, um, he had emphysema, smoked too much, was almost 80 years old and had lost his health so he pretty much couldn't walk around so he was sitting in a chair. And uh, you know he looked at that, I would look at the fire or anything around and just ask him questions. So it was a brick fireplace, I could still remember it like it was yesterday and this is when I was four, or five years old and another time, great time in my life, I remember I loved my grandpa a lot and he taught me, he was kind of like my father because I didn't, my mom was a single mom. So I'd look at that fireplace and I'd go, What is fire? And my grandpa, he knew, you know, he was a scientist. So he'd say, Well, fire is, you know, and unfortunately, I can't remember what he said. (laughs) This is probably a bad example, a bad example of me um, wondering. So let's just take this example, you know, fire is an important part of life. Why do I not know this? My grandpa knew. See, he was making things happen. He had made that knowledge go into his head. He had sought out knowledge. Sometimes he was watching, meaning he wasn't always in an aggressive mode of learning. Sometimes he was sitting back enjoying the fact that he knew what fire. But me, I was in the wondering state. Then I would look at the bricks and be like, oh, look, bricks. What do bricks come from? And he would say, well, bricks is a form of clay and this and that, and it's heated in a fire and that. So he knew because he had made this happen. He had not been somebody wondering. See, the wondering state is one that's easily testable. You can test it in yourself and you can test it in those people you surround yourself with. Just ask them questions. I always use this simple test. I mentioned this, I think, in the other 67 step, but it's a good one. Uh, Look at your keyboard. I got a keyboard here in front of me. Do you know right now what F5 does, that button, or what F8 does, or F12? Remember, these are buttons you see every single day when you use your laptop. If you go on your iPhone, do you know what all these buttons do? Like, you know, you go in here, and you, I'm going to go into my phone here, and you go to the settings. Uh, do you know what all the settings are in your iPhone? Have you ever taken the time to click through them all and just spend 10 minutes. Now, you might say, well, Ty, I don't wanna spend my life like that, but why not? That's an integral tool in your life, your phone or your computer. Yet again, most people wonder. If you say, what does F5 do? I don't know what. That's the wondering state. And one of the most important things, um, as evidenced by the fact that I talk about this more than once, is as you come out of these 67 steps, you know, where, where you're moving your way through Pretty far now, is I want you to become somebody who knows stuff. I would just had a company meeting with some of the officers who run one of the companies, and even them, you know, they're CFOs and C, uh, you know CMOs and CEOs and COOs that run my companies. I'm still having to be like top of mind. Do you, Why don't you know this stuff on the top of your mind? I had to ask a question about accounting on payroll and I was like, well we're sending this much out in payroll. What's the rough breakout of who's getting paid in the company? And they were like, well we got to go look on our computer and I don't like that attitude. I'm like, well, why don't you know that off the top of your mind? Why are you wondering Now that's not to say that there are things that will slip out of your mind. It's not to say in fact I'm reading this interesting book, Rookie Smarts here. Uh, I'm gonna do a book of the day on this, but Liz Wiseman it's a pretty interesting book. She basically says we're outsourcing our knowledge because there's so much the rate of knowledge in the world is she said, like in biology, it's doubling every I don't know eight months she said or eighteen months, something like that. So if you're a doctor, you know a year or two from now, you only know fifty percent of what you knew the year before. Right, because so she was saying it's not about memorization anymore. A lot of that's changed, and I agree with that. So don't take away from this that you have to become a walking encyclopedia. What I'm talking about today is a state of mind. It's a mentality. It's not a black and white line. It's not like, oh, if you don't know what, off the top of your head, what 83 times 42 is instantly. Well, why haven't you memorized your 83 times tables? That's not important. That's not the spirit of what I'm trying to say. This is not about the letter of the law as they say, it's about the spirit. The spirit here, you're generally somebody that's curious. There's a great book, it's called Curious. Uh, it's on my Instagram if you haven't seen any. The author basically says when he studies the most powerful, most successful people in the world, whether it's Einstein, Uh, Or Stephen Hawking or any of these people that have revolutionized the world people have risen above the crowd Riven risen above the masses They did it With curiosity as the instigation or the catalyst That force that really helped them to rise above so if you want to rise above you continually have to go all right I'm in a situation am I making something happen here meaning like am I a mover and shaker? Let's say you're at a meeting at business in a company you own or a company you work for. That meeting's going on. They're talking about how to increase revenue or how to cut costs. So you should be in only two modalities at that moment, either making things happen, meaning uh, overtly and explicitly directly contributing the conversation, being like, hey, you know what? I was thinking last night that a great thing we'd do would be to blah, blah, blah. So that's you making things happen in the meeting. Alternatively, you could be watching things happen, meaning you're sitting back attentively taking in the knowledge from the group of people around you. That's, that is watching and that's okay. People get confused and they think, you know, that what Sam Chupp meant or what I meant was that at every moment you're an alpha and you're just making, no, that's that doesn't make sense. That's a false understanding of life, you can't always be making things happen because there's plenty of time. There's a good book uh, called The Power of Introverts. Talks about people like Bill Gates. There's many introverts that change the world. People that go inward, they do a lot of observation and they're the watchers and that's okay. And then there's the makers, those are the talkers and the the CEOs and the alphas and, and that's okay too. But what you don't find when you look for people who change the world. You don't find people who um, wonder. You don't see wanderers in life. They're, the, the wanderers are the people who have no impact, who don't get the good life, who don't find the health, wealth, love, and happiness that they want. All they do is like Seneca says, the great stoic philosopher, in his book on the shortness of life, they just pass time, they don't really live. And he says, You don't wanna be that person. You want to live, okay? So to live, you must dissect. Now let's dissect this state that most people are in, which is the wondering. Again, you ask them, well, you can just test them or test yourself. It's always better to start with yourself. You know, do do you understand anything about the stock market? What's the difference between a stock and a bond? Do you know? What's the difference between cash accounting and accrual accounting? What's the difference between a preferred stock and a common stock? What's the difference between, uh, or where does fire come from? Why does gravity work? How far is the moon away? Now you might say, Ty, what does that have to do with life? Well, you know how's that going to benefit me. I can tell you a lot of things. Let me just start with this. Uh, In order to get ahead financially, you have to be an impressive person. So even if it doesn't matter to you that the moon is 20, I I think it's 20,000 miles away. I'm probably embarrassing myself by not knowing these questions, but um, if you don't know that or things like that, again, it's not the letter of the law. It's not like go out and memorize just trivial pursuit cards and that's gonna make you get ahead. It's not, but I will tell you, if you don't know things, you will not be impressive. And one day you'll be sitting down at a dinner A whole bunch of people will be there. You won't even know all the people at the dinner, but you'll be talking. There'll be somebody sitting next to you and you'll be an unimpressive person. Person who strikes them as, ah, this is just another person who doesn't, who's just wandering through life, wasting time. And you won't impress them. And they won't reach out to you like they would have if had you been impressed and said, hey, let's go to dinner sometime and they won't invest a million bucks in your business. They won't partner with you. They won't say, hey, you should meet my friend who's connects you to the next stage. No, you'll just go through life in a haze, never even knowing. That's why so many people in the hazy state go, Tar, what are you talking about? My life's just fine. I'm like, yeah, but you don't know what you missed out on because you missed out. Because when it comes to social, like attracts like, right? You don't believe me? I always say, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, you don't think you think it's coincidence that, you know, one of the most beautiful women in the world, dating one of the most, you know, biggest movie stars, guys, who makes about the same amount of money, who's in the same industry, who's about the same age, blah, 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 it just all similarity attracts in social circles. You can read, there's various reasons, evolutionarily adaptive, so on and so forth, but, the, even if you don't care about knowing anything, if you do care about your life, you wanna know stuff. I mean, I believe you should do it purely for the interest in knowledge. To me, that's uh, a good state to be in. You should get enjoyment just from knowing and understanding, and that, to me, that's what makes us different than the animals. See, a dog never asks why. A dog just knows, don't put your paw in the fireplace, and never ask why is that fire there, and that's why a dog cannot create fire, because if you don't ask why, I always say, Alan you used to tell me, asked, to understand anything, ask why three times, you know, you see a fire, why is a fire, why am I warm right now, well, there's a fire, why does the fire make me warm, well, it's the way that it heats the air, and the air moves from me but well, why does it heat the air? And then you get to the crux of the issue where you understand you know, basically the chemical processes that are happening in a fire. And now you may think that's a useless fact, but you don't, it might be useless to you, but just imagine if you were somewhere Imagine if you were doing the Warren Buffett test. Let's say you've had a great idea in your life. Have you ever had some amazing idea that you knew would have made you a millionaire or even a billionaire? Some idea, but no one invested in your idea, so someone else did it. I had that idea. I was gonna make the, when I was young, I read the Lord of the Rings, J.R. Tolkien book series, and I was like, man, this should be a movie but I didn't have the skill or the money to ever do it and Peter Jackson and those investors made that movie series and it's one of the biggest movie series of all time. So now that's not, they didn't take my idea obviously, but you see the point there, if I had had the money, if I would had the opportunity, that could have been me. So think about your own life, ever missed out on something? Well, what would make you an impressive person? Just do the inversion, you're at a dinner table and you have $100 million to invest. I just had somebody from the UK. There's money everywhere. I was at a dinner last Saturday in Beverly Hills. I was sitting next to the guy who started the E-Network, E-Entertainment Channel. On the other side, a uh, uh, guy from Harvard, young guy, sold his first company, now has a $20 million. He can't figure out where to invest. He wants to buy or start companies. He has 20 million bucks. And he said he can get more. So what would it take for you to get that $20 million to invest in your idea? or those connections with people on TV, to get your own TV, or whatever it is you need. Well, you'd have to impress those people and I'll tell you, I was just at dinner with them, the more you go up the chain, go up the ladder, it's harder to impress those people because they've already done a lot, like attracts like. The simplest way you can do that is to give off this authentic, genuine air about you, this feel that that's somebody who They're either always making things happen or or watching and observing and learning. They're never wondering. They never have a blank stare. They never have dull eyes. They're never, no, they're curious. So we talked about awareness in the other 67 steps. The takeaway from this one is your curiosity level must go up and the only ways, the two modalities to increase your curiosity quotient, I like to call it, is the first way is to be aggressively making things happen by seeking out knowledge, by making being a moving and shaker, and then alternatively by being a watcher. Watchers are introverted or uh, in a state of introversion, of listening, of learning, of reading, of being mentored. So those are the two states that you should go through the rest of your life in. Forget the other one. Forget the dull, you know, go blank behind the eyes passing time, that is for people who don't wanna live an extraordinary life. My goal and hope for you is that you want an extraordinary life. This is your one shot right here, right here, right now, however old you are watching this, youngest you'll ever be on this planet, the youngest you'll ever be right now. This is your shot, I don't care if you're 60, you better take your shot now. And if you're 18, you might think you're young, but you don't know how long this shot Uh, is gonna last, so you better take it and run with it. So, practical things, okay? Become aware of all the technical stuff around you. Even if you say, oh, I'm not a computer person. Remember, that's just a rule you invented. One of the 67 steps is no invention of rules unless they're a law of physics. When people say, oh, I'm not good at math, I'm like, well, what does that mean? That just means you got burned out in school. Doesn't mean you really aren't good at math. Richard Branson was dyslexic, but he said, in order to become a billionaire, I realized I'd have to learn numbers. So he just broke the rule. <laughs> Someone had made a rule that dyslexic people can't know numbers and he broke the rule. I love rule breakers. Think of Roger Bannister. Nobody could run the four minute mile. That was the limit. No one could run four minute. And then he did it. And then once he broke the rule, everyone's like, that's not a rule anymore. And then everyone could do it. But he had the special place. He's the one who broke it. So for you, go back to a place of being competent with the technology around you because it's gonna be a part of your life. So with your phone, click through things. Take a little bit of time, two minutes a day, every day. You wanna know how to use your iPhone? Click every button. You can't really break anything. If it pops up and says, are you sure you wanna delete? Then say cancel, but pretty much everything. Just click everything. Next time you're on your computer, just click every button or Google it. You got have to start with the tools around you. That's another thing that basically only humans have perfected. I saw a TED talk where a guy taught a crow to be able to get a ring out of a bottle and the crow was pretty smart, knew how to bend a hanger and then put it in. But that's the extent of it. Uh, Humans, you and I, we can do so much more, both for good and for bad, uh, unfortunately, but yet we have this power to use tools. So don't nonchalantly Use uh, uh, neglect the tools around you. You should know a little bit about your car. You don't have to be an auto mechanic, but know a little bit. Male or female watching, this will not be sexist. There's no reason that one gender has to know more about this than the other. So your iPad, your and and the thing is, even if those things aren't important to you. You're starting to rewire how your brain works. You can't turn your brain on and off the habits that you have. You're either a curious person and you're curious about life in general or you're not curious. There's not many people that are just like, I'm only curious on the exact relevant things and then my brain, because you're gonna spend all your brain power trying to turn off the curiosity. It's easier. Just keep the curiosity on about everything. So the technical things around you, the cars, the light bulbs, the power, uh, the uh, computer, laptop, iPhone or whatever phone, Android. Secondly, become more curious around physical things, physics. So like, why does gravity work? Why does fire work? Those are easy now at Google. Every once in a while, once a week, Google fire and read the Wikipedia on it. I like Wikipedia. Some people say, oh, Wikipedia is not good. Whatever. It seems pretty accurate to me. Uh, especially on big subjects like that. I'm sure there's a few Wikipedias that are inaccurate, but the big ones are pretty darn good. The third thing you need to become more curious, become more curious on biology. Know what the difference between protein, carbohydrates and fats and how they work in your body. Health, you have to know stuff. So make that happen and then watch your body more, right? Remember when you're pressing all the buttons on your laptop, watch it, see what happens. Get good at making happen, and watching what happens. So, biology, that's the third thing. The fourth thing is social interactions. Ask why three times. Why do humans fall in love? Why is that important to humans? There's good books on that. Why do men get pot bellies and women, you know, put on weight on their thighs? Why? Well, because that's the difference between men and women. Why is that the difference? Well, men put belly fat because testosterone drops and one of the signs, I mean, it's causation correlation thing, chicken and egg, but I'm just kind of running through this quickly. Well, but why would lower testosterone cause men to have belly fat? Because even if you don't care about biology, you do care about your own life. If you're a man or a woman, you gotta know some things on biology. Next thing, subject, money. You must know about money. You, have, you gotta know about your own body, health, biology. You have to know about money, period. When you're at your tax accounts, ask 10 questions. Why is this adjusted gross syndrome? What's the difference between that? What is a Schedule C or whatever your tax thing? No stuff. Make it happen. Go on Wikipedia. Buy a For Dummies book. I love the For Dummies book. Read them every once in a while. You don't have to do this every minute of every day, but you could invest in yourself 10 minutes a week, you know? Next time you have coffee, read something like that. Now, what else? Money. Love. Understand romance. That's a part of the social side. Read some Dr. Helen Fisher, some, you know, Martina Adshade, some David Buss. And then lastly, know about intangible things. Be curious. Why What makes people happy? Be curious about music, art. What's a chord? When you do this in this book, Curious, it's a great book, by the way, um, There's an owl on the cover, I forget the author's name, but he says, he's talking about this famous uh, TV executive in the UK who had just made millions, but was just bored and burnt out with life. Once he said, I became curious, and I was either watching or making things happen, he's like, the whole world opened up, everything was interesting, everything. The fact that I can stream through this camera right now, 200 years ago, 100, even 150 years ago, this was unheard of, but yet this is real, remember. Don't wonder if I meet you one day and I ask you about how does the camera work, know a little bit. You don't have to be, just to be clear, you don't have to be a medical doctor if you learn biology. You don't have to be a personal trainer if you learn fitness. You don't have to be a investor like Warren Buffett to understand a little bit about money. I'm talking about you having a basic, at least decent understanding of these things. Because the upside for you is it's gonna be hard to scam you. You know how many people get scammed when they make money? You might make money. And then lose it all because you knew nothing about money and some smooth talker came and convinced you to invest in a bad investment. But if you do, if you're making and watching things happen around money and your knowledge of money, that won't happen. There might be the newest diet fad that comes out or pills that people are taking to lose weight. But if you had a basic understanding of biology, read the book, The Story of the Human Body by Lieberman. If you have that basic understanding, that won't happen to you. If you, Uh, understand love, maybe you'll be able to prevent someone from cheating on you in a relationship or leaving you in a relationship or divorcing you because you understand, you know, maybe something simple book like the five love languages. Just whether that book is right or wrong, the point is you understanding the differences with people romantically, socially, all these things, and understanding your own happiness. The upside of this is the ultimate good life. So, questions for you, okay? What is something you've always been bad about uh, uh, being in a state of just wondering? You know nothing, okay? Number one, and what you're going to do about that, how you're going to change. Number two, what is something uh, that you've been good about either making or observing, you know, actively observing, making and watching things happen? What's something that you've done well and how could you do that even more, double down on it? And lastly, of the subjects I talked about, those six or seven, what's the one you're gonna focus on the most now? Is it gonna be biology? Is it gonna be finance? What's the weak link? Always attack that first, that you're gonna go out and make something happen. Learn more actively or observe, okay? So, we'll put that under the video. Comment there to close out this lesson. Write it on your private journal, pen and paper. You should have it by your computer while you're watching these, okay? So I will see you on the next 67 step. Thanks so much. All right, welcome to the next of the 67 steps here. Now, these are principles, these are guidelines, and today we're talking about one That's about the cognitive biases of your brain. Charlie Munger says that there are 25. There's probably more, but he listed the 25 main ones that cause you to make mistakes. And one of the habits that we want to train out of our brain over this 66 or 67 days that we're together in this program is us getting rid of those things that make us do stupid stuff. I was watching a movie yesterday. I went to the Sundance Theater, which is down the street. I watched kind of a, I'm not sure if i'd recommend it to you it's called force majeure it's a swedish movie subtitled and uh it's about a story of a of an there's an it's kind of a comedy it's not that intense but there's an avalanche at one point and i won't give away what happens but the the dad does something that he regrets and the wife is mad and at one point he says to himself he admits to his wife i hate myself i hate myself that i don't have enough courage i hate that I've done things you know, that I regret now and I didn't have the courage and the character. And it just reminded me of what we're gonna talk about in these cognitive biases. If you've ever been mad at yourself, you're like, I knew better. I knew I shouldn't go in business with that person or I knew I shouldn't date that person or I I knew that you know, I should be more patient on this or I knew I shouldn't have bought that. I should have saved my money. I think we've all had that. I've certainly had that. And if you break yourself down, What are the criteria that I followed that made me make that stupid decision? You will find and end up with about 25 of these cognitive biases. And the one I want to talk about today, that's very important. Maybe one of the most important, if not the most important of these 25, is something called misweighting. So today's uh, lesson or step, I should say, is called Donuts, a $250,000 check, and General Eisenhower the tendency to miss weight. Now, why do I give it that crazy title? Well, long ago uh, when I started one of my, not too long ago, when I started one of my companies, I hired an assistant. I won't say her name because I have different assistants. Don't want to embarrass her. But when she was first starting out, I remember there was something very important. Um, One of my business partner wanted donuts. And we also had a customer. Um, This was a wealth management company. We managed the stock and investment for people. And we, we needed to get a, a $250,000 check from a customer, but they couldn't come into the office so we were gonna send somebody to go pick up the check. So we told this assistant, we'll call her Susie, that's not her real name. So we said, hey Susie, here's the things we need you to do today. Can you stop and get some donuts? And can you get this $250,000 check from this customer? And That's all we said, we were real busy. Me and John Dewar, my business partner, and we're working, and um, that was in the morning. Then, like two or three o'clock, she was Susie was walking by, and I was like, "Hey, Susie," I was like, "How are things going?" Now, I expected her to give me the two hundred fifty thousand dollars check that she had gone to the client's office or house and picked it up, but she's like, "Oh, I got the donuts," and I said, "Well, what about the check?" And she said, "Well, oh yeah, I'm gonna do that li- a little bit later." Um, I said, "But." He might not be home if you go too late. And she's like, oh yeah, well maybe I'll have to get it tomorrow and I'll never forget that I was incredulous. You know, I'm like, what is going on? So I, we took her to the conference room, you know, we had a little training session, brought all the staff in and I'm like, you can't have donut prioritization. It's not about, because she said, well, but you asked me to get donuts and she was right. But my mom used to say something, I don't know if she made it up or heard it. You can get anything you want in life, but you can't get everything. Think about that for a second. You can get anything that you want in life, but you can't get everything. And you certainly can't get everything at once. So that leads us to the most important skill or one of the top skills you must possess. And that is the ability geniusly prioritize your life? How good are you at prioritizing? Think about today. What are those things that will make your life amazing? Well, being healthy. So did you prioritize working out first thing? I was reading about The Rock, the the, bodybuilder, the movie star. His life, he wakes up at four in the morning. He does cardio from four to, I don't know, 4.30 or 4.45. Then he works out. Weights. uh, then he eats breakfast and then he works out weights. So by the time it's 6.30 or 7 o'clock, he's already worked out and lifted weights and then he could spend the day doing his business, shooting a movie. Now, you and I aren't necessarily people that need to be pro bodybuilder level, but, 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 if he's doing it two hours a day, we could do it 10 minutes a day. First things first. Joel Salatin used to tell me that. First things first. The problem that you will run into, and we've talked about this before, is media bias. Everybody's trying to sell you on their agenda, and it's not just the media. It's not just TV. It's other people. They're going to push you to do things that are in their best interest. You know, if you look at game theory, Nash. If you've seen the movie A Beautiful Mind or read history and you know he won an, a, a Nobel Prize for game theory, how do you react when somebody does something? Do you Say yes, do you say no? The consequences of saying no, right? Or maybe you make them mad and so on. So life and our brains uh, are generally decent at game theory. You know, for example, that when you go somewhere, let's say you're in a restaurant and you bump somebody, the person bumped has the choice to turn around and punch you. But they play the game out in their mind. If they punch you, and you accidentally had bumped into them, they may face the hostility of the other people there going, What kind of idiot just gets lightly bumped on a chair and turns around and punches somebody? And then they know, so they play the game in their mind. If I overreact, the whole crowd might come and either hit me back or, you know, censor me, ostracize me, or they might call the police and I might end up. So you do the math in your head. Now, if you're sitting there and someone comes and jumps on you viciously and punches you, your game of your brain may play out the game theory that it's okay then to punch them back. You know, this is a good book I would just happen to have here, this social book, uh, buses book, there's many books on game theory. So that is an example of prioritization. It's a similarity, it's an if and, okay? So in your life, if you're not careful, you know what the priorities are. You you gotta be healthy. You have to make money to provide for yourself. You have to have love and friendships and family and romance and you gotta put enough time in that those relationships become stronger and stronger. You have to have some time for yourself to find fulfillment and happiness and intangibles and charity and altruism and a little art and a little music. All this comprises your life. And you know, as Einstein says, you should make things simpler but not simpler than they can be. Things should be simple, but you can't oversimplify. So life is not uh, that simple, yet it's very simple. That sounds ironic, that sounds contradictory, but it isn't, think about it. It's pretty simple, you gotta stay healthy, you gotta make some wealth, you gotta find love and you gotta keep yourself happy. Those are four simple things but the path to achieve them is fraught with landmines and other people's best interests and being pulled away. And so I don't want you to have donut prioritization. And the reason that Susie, the assistant, had donut is because it was easier. So one of the great things, I think Gary Keller talks about it in the book, the one thing is that it's very important that you Do the first things first in the day, even scientifically, we know that your brain runs out of willpower, right? It's like literally a chemical store of energy that you have in your brain and it can get depleted and it gets recharged, you know, as you sleep and wake up and it's a fresh new day. That's how we're built. So one thing I learned on a farm, whether it was the Amish or Joel Salatin or having my own farm is, you know. Knock out that hard stuff real early in the morning. There's a saying that the Amish have, I wish I had translated it. Um, But it says, when you have something hard to do, jump into it and the next thing you know, it's almost done. And so procrastination is, if you're writing this down, one of the big reasons we misprioritize because oftentimes the most important things are a little bit harder For Susie to have gone and got the check, she had to drive a little further, she had to ask for a $250,000 check, that might require some glycogen energy in her brain, take some sugar up, be a little bit difficult, she'd have to think ahead. And so the natural easy path was just to go to buy donuts. That's a brainless thing. You go to the donut store, you take, she was taking money, that she was using the company card, handing them the card, the company card, she didn't have to think. She could have had a headset on. She could have been doing nothing. So procrastination can come for many reasons. A lot of times from not doing your destiny. If you're feeling yourself procrastinating, you may be doing the wrong thing. But secondly, it can come from simply doing it at the wrong time when you don't have enough energy. So knock this stuff out as soon as possible. Whenever you have that hard thing, think of what the Amish say when you don't. When you have something hard to do, just jump into it. The next thing you know, it will be basically over, basically done, and time after time when I do that, I'm like, yes, it's amazing. The next thing to write down is you need a list somewhat. Don't go crazy with lists, because when the lists get too long, then you need a list to manage the list. But you need a running kind of tally of what needs to be done, and every day, and sometimes every hour, you must be willing to change it One of the other cognitive biases that cause you to make mistakes is called the commitment consistency. So let's say for whatever reason you've put getting donuts as the highest priority and you've committed, I'm going to go get donuts. Don't be the person that can't go. That's no longer important. Now getting the $250,000 check is more important. Dwight Eisenhower was one of the great presidents uh, or General Eisenhower before he was president. And one of the things he was the master of was organization management you know you you probably started this program with the book by Drucker managing oneself this what we're talking about today is part of management the miss or uh, mistake in putting this above this is as bad as not doing it at all okay so as I said this third point is don't commit and stay committed to something that is obviously no longer a priority. And that sounds like, of course, Ty, duh, that's obvious. It's not, it might be obvious, but it's not easy to do. It is not easy to do, first things first. I'm gonna leave you, this today is a little bit short, but sweet, because I really want you to think on this, and the power from this is try it today. What were the three things you were gonna do today, or two things? I want you to consciously, you can still do them, should you to consciously just say this to yourself. Is this as important as I thought it was? And secondly, what's now more important? Get excited by change. Most people are scared of change. As so Alexander the Great says, there's only two types of people in the world, those that conquer their fear and those that don't and suffer and die because of it. Your life will suffer if you're afraid to continually ask yourself, That was important to me. I don't know why it was. Let me throw it out. Don't be afraid to do that. It's hard. You know, people ask me how do I read a book a day and they go, I'm stuck. I can't read a book a day. Well, yes, you can. I'm working on this book. You know, my speed reading techniques, my skimming techniques that that you probably learn. If you haven't, I've got some videos on that. It's, this book is pushing an agenda. It wants me to read, and this is a great book, by the way. I'm getting ready to do a book of the day on the visible history of the human race, but You know, this book wants me to read from start to finish, but that's their agenda. So the next point to write down is do not be driven by other people's agenda unless it follows the law of physics. Is it a law of physics that I have to read this book from start to finish? No, that's a Jeff Bezos cool thing. He doesn't follow anything if it's not the law of physics. Like you need to be afraid of jumping off a cliff uh, because that's a law of physics that you can get in a lot of trouble when you hit the bottom at high speeds. So... You're not following anybody's agenda unless it's a law of nature. Is it a law of nature that I have to read this book? No, in that from start to finish. So I go, you know what's a priority for me today is to get some good ideas into my head. and uh, But then I've got, remember the second part is what else is important? I have other important things to do. So with this book, this one, I, I didn't even get past the introduction and that was enough for today. On page uh, 12 of the introduction, he talks about, she talks about uh, the author, a concept called path dependency. That's an amazing one I've never heard before. And that was enough. That was my gold nugget for the day. I prioritized my day and my reading on my agenda in light of those other priorities that I have. So the last thing I want to be left with, don't be driven by rules that are imaginary. Remember I say most people are zombies chasing mirages? That's one of the mirages. People are Zombies, I must read the whole book, start to finish. And it's a mirage that you even get a better benefit. I'd rather read 10 books and get one, their most amazing point into my head of 10 books than spend two weeks trying to force myself through one book. So get on your itinerary. Nobody knows your agenda as much as you do. You have many responsibilities. You must be a juggler. And that's the last point. You will have to juggle some things and at the same time, you'll have to be focused. Don't juggle too many balls, uh, but know that you will have to juggle some. There's a fine line between doing too many things and being too focused that you're forgetting on other important things. Sometimes when people try to get wealthy, they make it their one goal. That's all they do, but they sacrifice friends, family, health, and happiness. And I would say that's too extreme, but yet there's other people who do too much they do their own shopping, they clean their own house, they like to fix their own car. They they, they, they want to start their own business. Yet they want to work at their own career. Yeah, they want to, you know, go to movies whenever that. They, ah, they want to eat junk food. occasionally. like it's too much. It's all over the place. They're just the world is throwing things at them and they're just reactive. You can't be that person. You take life by the horns. You set a, a, a minimalistic amount of goals. I say pick 4, health, wealth, love and happiness and pick 1 thing in each you want to lose 20 pounds in health by the way i'm, I'm launching this uh, a, uh by the time you hear this maybe launch this uh health and fitness program with one of the uh, one or two of the top trainers here in hollywood that train the celebrities and know all the tricks of the trade and cool stuff highly trained people so um you know weight loss you want to lose 20 pounds that's your one simple goal wealth you wanna to get to level two at least, financial independence. Or maybe you're there and you wanna to get to prosperity or maybe you there and you wanna to get to wealth. Simple goal there. I'm gonna pick one business, go at that. Very focused, build a tremendous amount of skill. When it comes to love, you're like, I'm gonna build my Dunbar's number. 150 people, friends, family, and acquaintance, and romance, including acquaintances, that those are the people I double down on. I've got a group of 150 people that I go deeply with. Obviously, I have some as very best friends and some you know, more acquaintances. Uh then you know, your family's in there and romance is in there. You gotta put in the time and then lastly, you'll have this happiness. you can have to do some bigger picture stuff. A little bit of charity, a little of this, a little of that. Round yourself out. Become a little bit of a renaissance person. Pick up a new language. Pick up the piano, something you want to do. Go on a little travel, right? But notice, that's four. In, in When I was saying all those things, just pick one in happiness, by the way. Just one goal, like next month you're gonna learn, for the next 30 days you're gonna learn piano. Remember, you're not trying to become a concert pianist, just that one thing. And so now you have four main priorities. And again, those will need to be prioritized. You only have four things, one wealth thing, one health thing, one love thing, you know? You gotta prioritize those. And that is dependent on your life. If you're really poor right now, but you have a great family, you probably wanna put wealth a little higher, right? You already got the family going well and the friends. Maybe you're really healthy, but you're broke, or maybe you're really wealthy. I have a friend who just became a billionaire. He uh, sent me a little article on him. He's not even 40 years old. He's very overweight. I'm like, well, my friend, why don't you just make a little less money? You already have a billion now and make sure you live long enough and don't have a heart attack. See, that's where I said, you gotta be flexible. They change because once he gets really skinny and really healthy and maybe his money starts to go down, maybe he needs to flip there. Maybe he needs to spend more on love now. Continually cascading and re-putting in just simple common sense ways. Don't be buying donuts before you pick up a $250,000 check in your business. You can live without donuts, you can't live without business deals and revenue in business, okay? So, three questions for you now. Number one, uh, what is an example recently of something you misweighted? Wasn't that important and you did it first, okay? And what were the consequences of it? Number two, What's your four simple areas, things in each of the pillars, health, wealth, love, and happiness? What are they, okay? And which should you do first? Number three, how do you need to alter your day to do some of the harder things or the more challenging things first? What, should, what are you doing too late in the day that you should start doing at the beginning, okay? Put that in a comment below the video here. Please also write it in your private journal can take a picture of your pen and paper and, and send it to me uh, if you want it, Tai Tai Lopez. But make sure at least doing it here. Read other people's. Leave some replies in the community. So many people. It's uh, amazing how many people are in here. You know, seeing results. You will see huge results. Watch out by waiting. I didn't. Uh, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, General Eisenhower. Read a book on him. Read about his abilities to manage. He's like a guy like a Trucker. He did some simple things. It was. It's not always the flashiest and the fanciest, but he was able to administer. And that's a great part, uh, you know, why we were effective um, as a country back when he was a general and president. He's very good at that. And that's something that you and I must aspire to, to be able to administrate and move things around and prioritize and always the first things first. You can get anything you want in life, but you can't get everything, not at once, okay? So thanks so much, and uh, I will talk to you soon all right welcome to the next in the 67 steps guidelines principles forming new habits remember it takes about two months two and a half months uh, or so to revolutionize your brain so we are on the next one which is called uh 20% 20% weird factor, the cabbage mind and the treachery of scoundrels, the leeway you should allow. I was just recording a video uh, on the book Social by Matt Lieberman. How you interact with other people will basically make or break your life. In fact, Freud in Civilization is Discontent says, of all the eight or nine ways that humans seek happiness, the one that brings you the most highs is your interaction with people, love, romance, friendships, family, but he says, if this was suffice or this doesn't suffice to give us all happiness, because he said when these things go bad, they're enough to basically, you know, spin you off into a massive depression. So of all those areas, health, wealth, love, and happiness, social, the love component is almost the hardest to balance. So we need some principles to be successful. And one of those I call, these are all kind of related, the 20% weird factor. So. My business partner, John, many years ago, we were hiring somebody and I was out of town and I came back and this person wore high and looked good on paper, their resume was amazing. And I said, John, what do you think of this this person? And he came back and he said, 20% weird factor. I was like, what is that? He said, well, everybody can be 20% weird, but more than that, you're gonna run into trouble. And I call this also the treachery of scoundrels. You know, I had one guy who worked for me for many years. Uh, Very reliable, very sharp, but a little weird, a little weird, a little kind of antisocial, but a little bit too antisocial. And again, if you wrote down on a piece of paper the things that were kind of off, it wasn't just one thing or two things or three. It was almost 50% of who he was as a person. So he was above this 20% threshold. And what ended up happening is one day he said, hey, I'm gonna move to another state. Can I keep doing work for you, Ty? I said, sure. This is actually for me and John. Yeah, sure, go to this other state and work for us. And uh, he took all this important paperwork with him, all this paperwork for top clients of ours. This is in finance, very you know, important stuff. And We kept hearing less and less from him until one point he just disappeared working on all these business deals. He was handling the administrative side, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of deal and just disappeared. Never heard from him again. And as I think through it, uh, or as I thought through it, I realized we had ignored the 20% weird factor to our own danger and the treachery of scoundrels is there. He treated us, now he wasn't a bad person, but. That was the treachery, There's no reason. We were like, hey, we'll send FedEx, set us the boxes back of paperwork. Never heard from him. We never done anything wrong to him. He never expressed, hey, he just faded off. He was insecure person, which I've done a video, um, if you're on my podcast, but I'll revisit it here. You know, the kind of people you have to be scared of, the people that become treacherous, right? the friends that bite you in the back, the family members that bite you in the back, the spouse that bites you in the back, or girlfriend or boyfriend, are people that are a little too weird, okay? And also, they are insecure. So I put weirdness and insecurity. Now, I am fully aware that the word weird is subjective, right? You know, there's all. What my weird, it might be normal to you. But there's a general sense of what's normal in humanity. And it changes throughout time. You know, it used to be normal to wear a wig, is a white haired wig? Like if you were a judge or something like back in the 1700s, that obviously is not normal now. You know, there's a guy here on Sunset Boulevard and he walks, his name's Kevin, and he walks around dressed up like Jesus Christ. He wears, he actually looks very similar. He grows a beard, he has long hair that's very, you know, and he's got this long, like one piece kind of like, it looks like a dress, but it's like a, what you see in the Bible of Jesus, wearing clothes. And you realize, you know, when 2000 years ago, that was pretty normal. But the question is, why is this person wearing this now? Like, it's not a Halloween. It's like, that's what he wears all the time. That's a high weird factor. And you need to do an audit of people you're working with, people are employees for you, family members. Cause I'm telling you this right now, the kind of people that are gonna treat you like a scoundrel that are going to betray your trust, often originate in that pool of people who are most weird and most, um, uh, insecure. Now there's a type of weirdness that I think is okay. People who think out of the box, people who, you know, crazy inventors and mad scientists, uh, And also each of us, myself, you, we all push the envelope. If someone knew everything about us, we have some weird stuff. I'm sure you do. The point is it can't be too all encompassing. That's why I said 20% rule. Obviously it's not a hard and fast rule that exactly 20, you can't gauge it exactly. But we all know when we've been somewhere and we bump into someone like, that is a weird person. That is 80% weird. Be very careful of hiring them. if everybody thinks they're weird, but you don't, then I would say that's a little better. You know, maybe you're a little weird yourself if you hire somebody very weird like you. But in general, I still find this to be a very dangerous thing because if you look at it, step back from this whole thought that, oh, they're just nonconformists and they're not buying into life. And that's not what I mean by weird. I'm talking about you and I are socially geared to assess the environment we're in. It's 2,000 years ago, you would wear a long, you know, pe- robe because you assessed this situation and you saw everybody else was wearing it. And you might say, well, Ty, what, what's the point? You know, you remind me mean, nihilistic, everything, nothing matters, who cares if I wear a robe? Well, it matters because the exterior does matter. You know, if I came on the video right now and I was completely, you know, drunk, I was wearing a tank top, or no shirt in this car you might be like i don't want to listen to this person because we are designed to judge and read how we should react based on the reaction of other people i was talking about this book social matt lieberman if you're in the vip coaching i was doing uh, a call on this and he says the reason we have these brains is our ability to interact with 150 people like robin dunbar's number dunbar's number but that means 10,000 human connections so the takeaway from here is, and, and I want to talk about you know, one last thing. I called it the cabbage mind. I took that from Charlie Munger. What that means is you also want to stay away from a category of people who have what he calls the cabbage mind. These are people that they are Republicans or Democrats or conservative or liberal just because their mom was, and they really believe it strongly. There's nothing wrong with being politically inclined, but if the only reason is because you're unthinking human and you don't wanna hear the facts and you're just like, well, it's good enough for my mom, it's good enough for me. Now, most people won't say it that way, but if that's the general reason you believe. Same with religion. I don't know what your faith is. You might be Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, atheist, whatever it might be. I have all types listening to this, but I will tell you that um, uh, it's the reason that you are that thing that matters to me. So if I met you and you said, you're Buddhist or Christian and you had a story and you had a reason and it made some sense why it was important to you. I would respect that a lot more than if you just like, no, no, this is what's right. I was just with somebody that was defending their religion. Just horrible conversation. They had a cabbage mind. Avoid too strong of opinions in things that you don't know. So what you're looking for in the weird factor in people is not just insecurity, but really strong, unfounded beliefs. Because again, strong, unfounded beliefs and the inability to um, uh, question yourself and question what you grew up with is a sign that the brain isn't firing on all cylinders. It's also a sign oftentimes of insecurity. They don't want to admit they're wrong because they feel like that makes them look bad. Which again, points to back to what I said at the beginning. You can't be too much around people who are insecure and too weird. A little insecurity, sure, we all have it. A little weirdness, sure, we all have it, but when it begins to rise, and only you can answer uh, when that rise becomes too much. Everybody obviously has a different threshold. There's gonna be people, you may be one person who's like 5% weird factor, that's all you can handle. You might be somebody that's more like my mom, more hippie, she likes new ideas, and she might be able to handle 30%. But don't, be careful when people are 50% weird, when they're weird how they eat food, and they're weird how they dress and they're weird how they do business and they're weird how they communicate and, social, and their car is weird in the house. When it gets too much, unless you're trying to build a you know, commune or something like that or have some alternative living center, uh, be careful with that because normal people are not always better than weird people, just so you know. Sometimes weird is better, but most of the time weird is just stupid There's exception like I can divide out people. I mean who are truly weird Because they're so far ahead in how they think they're so intelligent or they're so innovative or so creative You know like Vincent Gogh or something like this and you know He cut off his own ear and you might go wow, that's a weird factor. That's a pretty high weird factor but at least it was a, you know, his creativity and his madness was productive. Einstein, I have a friend who grew up and he's an older guy and he remembers meeting Einstein would come buy food at his farm every weekend and he's like, oh, Einstein smelled so bad. No one wanted to get near him. So that's a weird factor, you know, smelling bad. The question is, why are you not taking a shower? Normal human conventions and health conventions are take a shower. And when you meet people that just discard that they're usually trying to compensate from for something. They're like, no, I'm not gonna, you know, do the obvious and take a shower. I'm gonna be counterculture. It's oftentimes from insecurity, and insecurity uh, is the root of treachery. Uh, the more secure of people that I know, the less chance and the less experience I have with them doing something wrong. So, or wrong to me. So, uh, what I want you to do is know that you may be too far on one way. That means you don't even give people 20% weird factor. If they're not just a little cookie cutter of who you are, you just cut them off. Well, that's wrong. That's not what we're talking. You need to allow some differences. Alan Nation said, Ty, don't marry someone like you. You already know yourself. Marry somebody who compliments you or somebody different. You know, when we, we hire, we got a consultant that helps us do the Myers-Briggs when we hire people and. You're not going to be well rounded as a person, but you can be well rounded as a team. So it's very important that you not be too judgmental of people. Let people be a little weird on, well, weirder than you, especially on certain subjects. That's on one end. But be careful on the other end. Most people listening when I do these talks, they're either one over here too much or over here. You find that middle ground, okay? Uh, You also find the middle ground when it comes to. Insecurity, how much insecurity you're willing to put up with, for people very critical to you. I'm talking people who like have your bank account info, people who take care of your children or something. Those are the ones that you got to be really picky and go, no. Person is too insecure, a little too weird. I'm worried, and just you got to cut them out. You can if you. The good news is if you do this ahead of time, when you watch this, you can slowly do it. Okay. So, uh, I wanna leave you with three questions, okay? Number one, take any person that comes to mind that's critical to your business life and operations. Could be a spouse, could be an employee, could be a business partner. What is their weird factor? Okay, zero to 100%. Number two, what's yours? And again, you might say, well Ty, What is an exact, you know, gauge of what's normal? Just take society in general, okay? I'm not saying you need to be status quo. There's a difference. Status quo and weird are not the opposite, okay? You can be a true innovator. I love that. You can be a mad scientist. You can be thinking of things that seem weird to other people. The idea seems weird, but I'm talking about you as a person. See, you can be weird. But if you're weird and you have a weird idea, it's a little bit by. like what Alan Nation told me. He said, Ty, you can be a nudist and people will give you a pass. Oh, that Ty guy, he's kind of weird. I mean, he's a good guy, but he's kind of in this weird nudist thing. Ah, it will still hang out with him. Everybody's a little weird. Then he, Alan Nation said, you can be a nudist and you can be a Buddhist. If you suddenly became a Buddhist, maybe some of your family friends are like, oh, that's kind of weird. We grew up one way but Anish said, you can't be a nudist Buddhist. It's too weird. And that's the principle I teach in business on when you develop your products, how you're selling things, make them not so weird. Frank Chindamo, professor at UCLA, one of the top uh, internet professors of internet, he says, you got to tread on mental real estate that already exists. Uh, but anyway, if you're not in the business stuff, you, sh- you could uh, leave a comment here or email me at ty, tylopez.com. We'll send you some links to get into that. It's Kind of imitation only. Um, but going back to this kind of principle of weirdness, you know, what's yours? What areas are you weird in? Okay. And what percent you think you are. Thirdly, insecure. How are you dealing with the insecure people in your life? Remember, insecure does not, you could have someone just starting out. It's not a materialistic thing. You can have a very wealthy, in fact, I know a lot of wealthy people insecure. So it's not about how much money they have or success. There's people at the top and the bottom that are very insecure. And there's people at the bottom and the top that are very secure. So who are or who is someone that's most secure in your life and what can you do over 18 months, the next 18 months to slowly phase them out or at least phase them to less hours around you. Your environment does affect you. So. Thank you so much for being here, and uh, I will see you on the next 67 Step. Make sure you leave the comments below and in your private journal if you want to take a picture and email me those at ty, Tylopez.com, I'd love to check them out. All right, talk to you soon. All right, welcome to the next in the 67 steps, guidelines, principles, revolutionizing your life, starting in the brain. Like Confucius said, to change the world, you gotta change the heart of people. To change the heart, you gotta change the mind. To change the mind, you have to instill curiosity. That was what he said at the beginning. So today's, today's, uh, not book of the day, I do these book of the days too, but today's 67 step, I call it the six pack of the mind. Focusing on first thing first the first things first Sounds trite sounds cliche, but let's think about this for a second We know have I mentioned various places, but I'll repeat it again That the mind your mind my mind The reason we have hard times in life is not just because of the external world It's not just hurricanes and car accidents and drunk drivers. It's not just your boss It's not just uh you know, uh, freaks, accidents, plane crashes. It's not terrorists. It's not diseases. All those things obviously affect you in a massive way. It's not just divorce, abuse, violence, war, but more importantly, each of these things happen in our mind and people want to change the world. But as Confucius says, it begins in the mind and how we think. And there's probably 25 minimum cognitive biases. Those are Things that make us make mistakes. There's more than that. I mean, if you throw in logical fallacies and all these, the way our brain is wired is not very effective. It's kind of like this if you and I, uh, right now, were dropped into the middle of the ocean, literally, like, I saw, I was reading uh, the book by Louis Zamperini or Zamperelli. He wrote that book um, where he talks about how he crashed into the middle of the ocean in World War II and spent 42 days on a life raft fending off great white sharks and no food and no water and Japanese uh, zero pilots shooting at him and his the three there's three of them on the boat and one of the guys ate all the, the food on day one and all this that he dealt with and how did he do it? Well, he controlled his mind, right? He said the other guys didn't have control of their mind and that's why they didn't make it. And thrive the way he did it so the ex and he also said that was the happiest he ever was you know he went through this became a war hero came back to America became an alcoholic was unhappy it was the control of the mind that he had control of the cognitive biases on his mind so you know I talk other ways I have some business programs some persuasion things some of you are in that where I talk really specifically on each of the cognitive biases and, and how you can use them Uh, for good and not for harm for yourself and for other people. But I want to focus on one of them that really gives you this six pack of the mind. You know, everybody wants a six pack stomach and that's great. But what's the benefit of a six pack stomach? There's some you're healthier, the lower your, you know, your waist uh, to hip ratio generally dictates how healthy you are. But even more than that, I'd rather have somebody who has a little bit of belly fat but as a six pack in their mind, first things first, first things first. There's a cognitive bias and an error producing thought process that I guarantee you, you have, that I have. It's always there and you will never get rid of it, but you can control it. It's a little bit like a Rottweiler. You know, a bad Rottweiler, when it's out of control, the only thing you can do is put a leash on it. And then maybe then you'll be able to use it to guard your house, to protect you. And so that's what a lot of these cognitive biases, but specifically this one. Miss waiting. So I'm just gonna start by asking you a question as I explain this. Today, as you go through life, were your thoughts pretty much aligned with spending the majority of your day thinking on the biggest bang for the buck concept change that's needed in your life? Or were you distracted? Did you maybe think a lot about what you should wear for the day? Did you think a lot about whether what some stranger thinks about you? Did you think a lot about, oh, I love this song by you know Rihanna or Justin Bieber or Lady Gaga or whoever you listen to? Did you watch TV that's completely unrelated to your life? Now, I'm not saying any of those things in and of themselves are worthless, but the question is, is it more important than you thinking about how you can double your income you thinking about how you can double down on your own brain become sharper build more skills learn a new language did you think about that did you think about maybe childhood dreams you had that you never fulfilled like learning to play a musical instrument or learning how to sing or becoming a better public speaker did you think about better friendships better romance better allies that you could make? Did you think deeply on philosophical thoughts that could affect your whole perspective on how you see the world? Did you think about history and the lessons you can learn? Like Will Durant calls his book, The Lessons of History. How much, how many minutes today were thought on that? How about did you miss your time? Everybody has about 16 hours where they're awake. If you sleep seven, eight, nine hours a day, Many people have more than that because not everybody sleeps that long. But let's say you sleep a healthy eight hours or so, got 16 hours left to live your life. Uh, What proportion of that life was spent in something that's investing in your short-term and long-term future around the big health, wealth, love, and happiness? How many minutes did you spend exercising? You know, I was with a guy, Elliot Hulse, one of these. Well, he got a million YouTube subscribers, great, fascinating guy at his conference in Florida and I was speaking there and and you know, every day I said, what's your routine? And he said, you know, I, I wake up and I got my kids. He's got four kids. He's married to his high school sweetheart. They met at 14 years old and been together ever since, 21 years, I think. And he's like, you know, I focus on the things like, how can I have a better relationship with my wife? How can I get out and have my walk so I move? He said, he's a big, strong dude. He's famous for like, he's a power lifter, or strong man. And he he says, you know, I make sure I get out there and move. And while I'm moving, I'm listening to audio about things that inspire me, motivate me, great thinkers. I then come home, I make breakfast for my kids. I invest time into them, taking them to school. Then I go and I invest in my business. You know, he has what's called, he calls a non-job. It's great. Where he didn't have a real job, but he makes lots of money. Non-job. So he invests in that. He invests in his friends, his business partners. He takes time. He has, he says, I, I believe in rituals. He has rituals taking his wife out on, I think, of date night once a week. Said even when they don't feel like it, even when they don't feel close, he's invested. See, this is a man who's prioritized his life. He's got a body in shape he says he pre cooks his meals see he thinks ahead he's thinking about the things that are important most people and you must stop this you I must stop this it's a battle every day but the reward is high for pulling it off most people are penny wise dollar foolish it's an old saying that means they're very smart about a penny but the big things like dollars, they just let, they just let go. You want to be dollar wise and penny foolish, and there's a big difference. That means, you know, I have one of my cousins, she has an amazing memory, and one of the things I've been working with her over the years. She, when I first, you know, she started working with me, so much of her memory was like, what movie star is married to another movie star. And she knew them all, you couldn't name one person in the relationship and this and that. And I said, why don't you use your memory for something that has a purpose for you? Like there's no purpose except making the celebrity more famous, which doesn't benefit you, it benefits the celebrity. Why don't you use, why are you penny wise? Meaning you're very wise about who, you know, Angelina Jolie's one one day she got married to Brad Pitt. You know that. But if I ask you, what does E equals MC squared mean? Because make no mistake, it's a complicated theory, but it's not that complicated. You could understand it. You don't have to understand all of the theory of relativity, but it's relevant for your life. But she doesn't use the brain power for that, or she used to not. Now she's changing that. People know a lot about what the price of gas is. Oh, you know, I'm going to go to this other gas station where it's a dollar. You know, it's ten cents cheaper. Well, that's smart, that's a penny. You're gonna save some pennies. But if I went into your budget and looked at what you've spent money on the last six months, maybe there's maybe you've been spending a thousand dollars on something stupid. Sure, you save a few bucks and that's great. But start at the big things. You know, it's funny, one of my business partners at one point years ago we're making money and he's like, let's make more money by cutting costs. I was like, sure, let's let's do that. Uh, guess what? The first thing he did, and this is a smart guy. I mean no harm or no, you know, disparagement to him as a smart, smart one of the smartest guys I've ever been with. But the misweighting bias is in your brain whether you're smart or dumb, whether your IQ is high or low. And guess what he was like, Ty, I was looking at pencils and we spent like forty six dollars on pencils. I think I can cut that to like twenty-six. And I was thinking, that's great. That's gonna save us 20 bucks. It took you 30 minutes to think that up and it took you 500 units of glycogen. I don't know, I'm just making that up, how much sugar it took your brain. It took that much time. You only have so much time on earth. I was like, why don't we start with the things we're spending 50 grand a month on, like marketing? Why don't we get more efficient on marketing? If we get 20% more efficient with pencils, we'll save five bucks, eight bucks. If you're spending 40, save 20, get 20% more efficient, you'll save eight bucks. But if we're spending 40 grand, uh, we get 20% more efficient, 8,000 bucks. The same amount of glycogen to come up with those ideas. The same amount of time, but the bang for the buck was 10, 20, 50, 100 times larger. So I want you to take a new perspective on life. I want you to not so much always think about, am I doing the right thing? because the definition of the right thing can only be understood in the context of opportunity cost. So for my business partner to want to save uh, 20% off what we spend on pencils, that might've been a genius idea if everywhere else in our business was efficiently uh, being run and there was no costs that could be cut anywhere else. So what he forgot was that there was an opportunity that was bigger and bigger better somewhere else. So the new way to think about life is not whether you should try to save a buck on gas. It's, is there anything else you could do in your life that the same amount of time driving across town to save a buck, you would save $100 or $1,000. One of my clients, I remember in finance, uh, he was a a businessman, but he's married to a doctor, really smart woman. And he told me, he said, Ty, One thing I don't understand about my wife, she cuts coupons. He's like, we make like half a million bucks a year and she cuts coupons all the time, which is great, I like that. But then we've been working on this pool outside that we built in our backyard and we spent like, I don't know what he said, 50 grand to build it. And he's like, nobody ever swims in it. And he goes, but she just rushed into that decision. She's like, impulse, this is so important, this is so important. Uh, spent and, and this is worth 50 grand, so she's penny wise in saving pennies on coupons. But when it comes to decisions where she could have cut costs by 50 or 100 grand, she was just well, foolish. Now it's not picking on her. The point is, you and I are both guilty of that. Think about take. if you don't believe me, I always tell this story take someone to the bookstore. Try to get them to buy a $50 book. They are like, are you crazy? Then just look down at their shoes. Take them to buy Charlie Munger's, Poor Charlie's Almanac in Barnes and Noble or, or Brookstones Take them to buy uh, uh, Dr. David Buss's book, Evolutionary Psychology, $70, 80 $90 book. Watch their faces, they ain't buying that book. What are you talking about? You want me to get knowledge in my head? from some of the world's greatest thinkers that took them 40 years of research and I can get it all in my head instead of having to spend 40 years, I can get it all in my head by reading a book for 70 bucks? No, well, I'm not gonna save my money for that. Then look at their shoes. Male or female, you'll see. They're probably wearing shoes worth 100 bucks. Look in their closet. Then just ask them, why don't you just go barefoot? It's probably healthier for you. <laughs> save that money and buy the book. That's the misweighting bias. It will affect you and how you spend your money, <clears throat> how you spend your time. It will definitely affect your social life. So many people I know, instead of taking their best friends, their best alliances and doubling down on them, no, they treat everybody the same. Oh, well, it's Susie's birthday. I don't even really like her, but I'm gonna go to her birthday. Why? That's miss waiting. Because the opportunity cost, assuming you have a better friend, take that day, that hour, that birthday present and buy it for somebody who's truly gonna be in your life. It doesn't mean you have to be rude to other people, but it does need, uh, you do need to remember, like Rabbi Hillel, if I don't love myself, who will? Nobody's gonna take care of you. Nobody's gonna take care of your social alliances and friendships but you. Go deep and not as wide in how you invest. Like uh, Andrew Carnegie, the great... Uh, Baron, they call him robber barons, one of the wealthiest persons in history. He said, The secret to life and investing is put all your eggs in one basket and watch the basket. See, he's talking about misweighting bias. He was saying, When everybody out there is trying to read a hundred books but not finishing any of them, they're going, Well, you know, that book might, they're penny wise with their time. They're very concerned. Oh, I didn't finish. You know, I meet a lot of people that get stuck reading because they're like, well, what if I don't read every page? I kind of feel weird to not finish a whole book. Why? Why do you feel weird? You're not offending anybody. The author already got his money when you bought the book. He's happy. Who are you worried about offending? But yet people are literally worried about that. People are worried about uh, quitting their job, becoming an entrepreneur because they're worried what if something goes wrong? But I'm like, but opportunity costs. Why aren't you worried about living a bad life? Why aren't you worried about living a horrible life? Why aren't you worried about living a life where every day you can't wait for it to be Friday so you get a few days off from work? See, miss waiting. People go, what's really important to me is not losing my job security, but they're willing to give up their mental sanity. That's not a good exchange. Better to be poor homeless, even if you have a family. Go join a commune, go join Peace Corps. You'll find enough work to feed the family. We don't live in the world where you're gonna starve anymore unless you're in a very third world country listening to this. So once again, people's priorities make no sense. I always say that, look, when I'm here in Hollywood Hills, I look, I, You know, I, I, I see people all over Sunset Boulevard walking. And I'm like, these people are thinking about all the wrong things. That Denzel Washington movie that came out, The Equalizer, the bad guys are these serial killers and they kill people and they're reading the newspaper in the morning after they had just killed some innocent person. And they're reading about, I forget what it was, the front page, some alarmist newspaper, you know, talking about, oh, this, that and the other thing. And the bad guy looks at the newspaper and he goes, looks at his henchman, and he goes, People are worried about all the wrong things. You see that. A disease pops up in the world. Two people in America have it, whether it's bird flu or this, swine flu or that. I'm not diminishing the fact that those are dangerous, but people aren't worried about the fact that being overweight is about 10,000 times more likely to kill you than some exotic disease. But yet your mind misweights and you start going, oh, well, I don't wanna go out in public. I don't wanna go on a plane. Well, how about saying, I don't wanna eat processed food. If you had control of your own mind, which as you go through this 67 steps in 67 days, you're gaining control of your mind. You're not going to do that anymore. You're going to go, you know what? Let me be penny wise and dollar wise. But if I have to choose, let me be penny foolish and dollar wise. The odds of you getting some rare disease are like a penny. They're about that big. The odds of you dying of a heart attack The odds of you dying of some complication because of lifestyle, something in your control is that big. So spend all your time or 90% of your time on that and give yourself every once a month five minutes to think about these elusive, rare things that can happen to you. When it comes to business, same way. Don't be pulled around by what employees want if you're self-employed or what Things seem to be dragging you. Sit down. I say sit down in a room 15 minutes a day, a dark room, no electronics, and think through life and prioritize. You can do it with a simple list. Some people like mental lists. Some people need to write it down. Some people need to have accountability partner to think through. But this is more than just lists. This is a whole new way of thinking. When you join the 67 steps, what I promised you is what I'm hoping that I'm delivering to you. A whole new way to think about life. A way that you were never taught when you were growing up. A way that nobody ever showed us in school. I don't know why, psychologists have known about this. It's been in textbooks, in some dusty libraries, all this research that you're learning about misweighting bias, but for some reason, it never made its way to the ears, uh to your and I, uh, 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 my ears, right? So three things that I want you to do to finish up this step. Number one, I want you to write out an example here, put it below the video of an example where you have grossly misweighted things, things that weren't that important. You have thought about, you have put a lot of money into, and you have uh, put a lot of time and energy into, okay? Number two, talk about an area that you've under invested in, okay? Specifically, maybe it's your reading, maybe it's your Exercise what is something you knew you now realize deserved a lot? So the first question is something that didn't deserve it and you put a lot into it the sec the next question now is Deserves a lot. I mean, uh, well vice versa. What's the first one? The first one is something you didn't deserve time and energy and money and you put in this one is that does Deserve time and energy. Okay, and number three I want you to think Specifically on one area Okay? How much time each day are you going to devote to prioritizing your life? I'd like you to commit to one, two, three, four, five, 10, maybe even 15 minutes a day. I don't want you to try to do this too much. It'll be too overwhelming. You don't need to spend hours on this. You'll get paralyzed. How can you spend five minutes a day, little bit of paper, just write out two or three things that you should think about, that you should buy, that you shouldn't buy, that you should invest in that you shouldn't. Just something to remind you. Keep the list short, okay? And so the third thing here below is go ahead and put in a quick little list for the rest of today, or, or if you'd like to plan for tomorrow, for tomorrow. But what you're gonna do in the next 24 hours, what you're gonna focus on and what you're not gonna focus on, okay? So I hope that's been helpful. Get a six pack of your brain. Learn the cognitive biases. Start with this is one of the most important do not miss weight. Things that sh- that should only take that much, don't overweigh them or underweigh them. See things as they truly are without delusion, okay? It's important to save a little gas by driving to a cheaper gas station, but only in comparison to the other opportunities you had to take that same amount of time and save money. Maybe it's something that would save you 10, 20, 30 times more, okay? Thanks so much. I will see you on the uh, next video. Make sure you fill this out in your private journal. Take a picture of it if you want. Send it to tietylopez.com. Ty, okay? And I will talk to you soon. Thanks so much. All right, welcome to the next in the 67 steps guidelines, principles to live the good life health, wealth, love, happiness. How do we get there? Start by changing habits. There's two time frames you want for life. The 67 day one is the scientifically uh, researched, optimized time frame to start rewiring the brain. We used to think it was 30 days, but. Doesn't seem like that's the best. University College London says around 66 or so days. I added one for good luck. So we're going through. You're pretty far along here in the 67 steps. I call this one today, Bone Thugs and Harmony and the Tyranny of the 1st and 15th, undoing the chains of the rat race. So, you know, Bugs, Bones, Thugs and Harmony, I put them, they've got a song about, you know, the rat race. Um, I kind of put that tongue-in-cheek, but you know, the tyranny of the 1st and 15th uh, is high on my mind, and if you look at what dominates the vast majority of human's life right now, it's what? It's finances. It's making money. So this program, 67 Steps, that you're in now is not about business per se. I've... If you choose, if you go through this 67 steps, you can graduate into I've got this level two, which is this, you know, business academy online mini MBA investor entrepreneur system. But I want to touch on things because uh, it's important that you understand that as part of the good life. And, you know, when there's this uh, understanding of the first and the fifth. Being a real tyranny. The average person in the world, billions of people, are just dreading the next day. They got to, the next date that their rent is due, their car payment is due, their insurance is due, that they have to uh, pay their insurance and food. Everything that you have is centered around. Now, it might not be the, always the first and the 15th, but most people are captives to some cycle that is the definition of scarcity and not having financial independence see financial independence means the days begin to blur together obviously you'll have some deadlines and things but you're not under the tyranny okay you're not under the tyranny of the first and the 15th i'm going to try to pull something up here um so for you uh How do we get away from this? That's really what I wanna talk about. And I think there's a simple way and a hard way. Let's start with the simple way. The simplest way is to change how you understand uh, money, how you understand the tyranny. The way most people understand it is this is an inevitable part of life that you will be going, can I scrape by for the first to pay my rent? Can I scrape by for the 15th? Now, the breakthrough that I had, one of my business partners, John, he said to me, he said, Ty, you know, what is the opposite of monthly bills, monthly expenses? So I thought about it. What is the opposite of monthly bills? Monthly expense, well, if you just use logic, the opposite of monthly expenses is monthly income. So, the solution for everything is income for the most part. Obviously, you need to cut costs, but some costs are inevitable in a world of 7 billion people where you exchange currency for time, for energy, for services. You're not going to get away from that. You know, even Amish or survivalists. Uh, still have to buy and exchange. Even the Native Americans hundreds of years ago in the United States were exchanging goods with each other and then with uh, you know, settlers when the settlers came. So when bone Thugs in Harmony, when, there's, when people are rapping or singing about you know, the grind of life and, and you know, gotta pay those bills and all that kind of stuff, they're right. That's what average person's life is dominated by. That's what the crowd is dominated by, their thoughts. And But we wanna be like Friedrich Nietzsche when he said that every person wants to rise above the crowd, every extraordinary person. And If you're still in this program, you're on your way, maybe you already are an extraordinary person that's risen above. So this thought of how do I create Income, that's not one time. You see, obviously when I said that, you know, monthly expenses, the opposite of monthly expenses is monthly income, that's pretty obvious. People are like, oh, Todd, that's no, it's not helpful, how's that help? me?" Well, let's think a little bit deeper. I think it helps you. I think it helps you to understand you gotta just match it. If monthly expenses come in like clockwork, and they do, boy, your bank doesn't care If you lost your job, your bank doesn't care, if your mom's sick, they just want their money. And the same with your car payment, and the same with the grocery store, and everything you have. It's like clockwork, you gotta pay it. Can't do it on credit most of the time, or eventually your credit will run out. So in the same way, your income has to move into this clockwork. Boom. Always on the first money coming, always on the 15th. Now, how this is known, what I'm saying, because that's why people for the last about 100, even less, 50 years, have had nine to five jobs. That was the solution for it. 150 years ago, most of the world was rural, living on farms. They were not under the tyranny of the first and the 15th. I live with the Amish. I live with Joel South to spend 10 years on a farm. If you own your own land, for the most part, you have a pretty sustainable system. You need to make a little bit of money because you gotta buy feed and seed and stuff like that, but you're not under that first and 15th grind. There is no first and 15th, if you own the land that you're on. And that's how people traditionally grew up a hundred years ago, 150 years ago. It was much less of a rat race, but as the world changed, as it modernized, as it got more competitive, the rise of the corporations, uh, the new ways of making money, People settled, you know, especially the baby boomers after World War II, really settled into this nine-to-five. So this tyranny really came in in kind of a underground, behind-the-scenes kind of way uh, that we didn't even realize. To us, it feels normal, right? You probably grew up with parents that had that nine-to-five, and so that's normal. And like Dr. Helen Fisher says, we we have mental mind maps that we basically conform to without realizing. If you grew up with somebody under the tyranny of nine, uh, the nine to five and the first and the 15th, you and I will succumb to that most likely unless we work hard against it. If you grew up with people, parents who ate a lot of junk food, you'll probably have a big belly. The only way you can work against that is to fix the philosophy in your mind and do some sit-ups or exercise to get rid of the belly. So in the same way, what the 67 steps now we're talking about is under is the, changing the underpinning of how you understand how finances should flow and the way they should flow is very simple. They should flow in regularly like clockwork and hopefully in a much more abundance than the bill is. Again, you might say, Ty, I already know this, but there's a lot of innovation that you can do in your life when you understand the fundamentals. Now, uh, I was just recording uh, or just live on the camera here from my house earlier today and I was talking about, uh, you know, throughout history and I just kind of gave you a little preview. The civilization has come into the corporate stage since maybe 40s, 50s to today. But there's something changing that is changing how people Will meet the demands of the bills on the first and 15th. How did people do it? Let's keep going back in history. It's important you understand it. Uh, thousands of years ago, who was the dominant economic, uh, uh, or who were the wealthy people? Who were the people who had control of money and resources? Simple. It was warriors. It was Genghis Khan. It was, you know, Native American tribes or the Vikings. It was Alexander the Great. They took what they wanted. That was the stage. That was the old one of the old rules of money. To make money, you had to take it in a warlike state. Then it progressed. You had what? You had explorers. That was another. I'm not doing this exactly chronologically, but explorers: Vasco da Gama's, the Pizarros, the Magellans. I just read a book where he went around the world. They were seeking gold and silver, and they went to Potosi. And they went to the Incas and they took so much gold and silver, it, it financed, and domi- it's why Spain was the dominant force you explored. And there's still some exploring going on, but it's not the same. Much of the world's been explored. There's no new continents to discover. So that was an old way that you could get from scarcity financially to abundance, to meeting the first and the 15th. They didn't have bills back then, but they still needed the same things you and I need. And that's how people, Rose above, they became explorers. There was a time in history where there's kings dominated, right? And then you had to, that was the worst because you'd be born into it for the most part. Maybe you could marry into it or become a duke or an earl, but it wasn't a great way. That was a whole period in serfdom and the kings and the rulers had it, the aristocracy. And there you were pretty much had fate kind of, there wasn't much uh, chance of advancement. It was pretty genetic. That was an old way though. Then he had the banking phase, Medici's, and you know Rothschilds, and you know these families, even the Habsburg's in Austria. Um, and that was that phase. If you had control of money at that point, there were so few sources of money that the people who had the money had tremendous power. It's not like that now. Banks are competitive, of course. Bankers still make money, but it's not the same. Uh, as you go on in history, then you had the kind of the robber barons, they call them. Well, you had the settlers at one point, which are kind of like pioneers, explorers. Then you had the, these robber barons, the Rockefellers, the Carnegies. And then after that, you had kind of the industrialists Or at the same time, the, the Henry Fords building factories, even in the early 1900s, and they dominated. But then we came to what I said, the 50s. It was the entrepreneur. I'm sorry, it was the corporation. But now the good news is we are left in a brand new time where if you can be this one merged concept, these two words merged into one, investor entrepreneur mindset. This is the future for those people who wanna rise above. If you wanna rise above financially, four levels of financial of finances, you can be at scarcity. That's according to Nobel Prize winning work by guys like Kahneman, Daniel Kahneman, that's below 70,000 a year. He says you will be operating with more cortisol, less dopamine, less good hormones, lots of stress hormones. You gotta rise above that to level two, which is financial independence. That's like 70 to 150 a year, depending on what country you're in. And that's where you begin to be able to do stuff and you're not uh, completely under the tyranny of the 1st and the 15th. The tyranny of the 1st and 15th. It's not the greatest place to be, even though most of the world is in that place. So after that, what do you have? You have prosperity. It's 150,000 to a million. That's beginning where you're not just independent, but you're starting to be prosperous. You're starting to, you know, maybe have a guest, maybe have a vacation home or something like that. Uh, not just materialistic, but, you know, it's another level up of independence. And lastly, seven. that was 150, to, let's say a million. Above a million is where you start to have wealth and impact. You can really change the world financially. Of course, you can change it with no money, but uh, if you choose to do it in a financial way, like Bill Gates Foundation or something like this, Oprah Winfrey begin to change the world, Uh, and you have access to impact and power with money. So, wherever you are, we wanna move you up. Now, in the 67 steps, you're not gonna completely be able to do that uh, because this isn't a business course per se, but we can begin to change the habits, which will then lead you to the next step. Some of you may be interested. You can uh, click on some of the stuff, the mini MBA. The business program that I have, uh, very powerful, very powerful. Self, it's built around the knowledge of self-made millionaires, not college professors. Not that there's anything wrong with college, but we're going to go to a different place. Uh, learning from people, you know, net worth over ten million dollars, all the way up to billion dollars. People in person. Um, my my experiences, businesses, and what I was taught by my mentors and those people that I'm lucky enough now to have friends uh, friends and allies and business partners. So for you, going back to this, there's an evolution that must take place in your brain. You have to take advantage of the new rules of money. You see, you and I are still trapped back in the corporate days, which means people work nine to five. Now let me say, there's nothing wrong with working nine to five per se. There's nothing wrong with having your bills on the first and the 15th. Even wealthy people have bills. But the tyranny is what you wanna avoid. Meaning waking up going, this obligation, I'm not sure if I'm gonna meet it. And having that continual stress. There's nothing wrong with stress at different occasions in your life because it will drive you forward to new aspirations, new ambitions. But if it's a low grade or high grade stressor that continues on and off, on and on without hope, That's gonna drive you to a place that you don't wanna be. None of us wanna be. You may be there now. And the first place is to understand there's new rules of money. There's never been a time in history where I was reading about a 16-year-old kid who started a toy company. He's making $10 million a year. The kid who started Sumly, an app that summarized the news in the UK, sold it for $15 million. Or Zuckerberg with Facebook making almost 30 billion dollars before he was 30. I have friends one friend 25 years old worth a hundred million dollars another guy was with uh that's in the inner circle some of the stuff I do five to eight hundred million dollar net worth before he's uh, uh before and he's still in his 20s when else would this happen in history it wouldn't happen necessarily you know in the warrior stage occasionally young people took You know, Alexander the Great was young. But in general, no. You know, it was the people who had large armies behind them. It was hard. The explorers, very few people could do it. Now you have millions of millionaires just in the United States. See, back then it was one winner take all. Alexander the Great took half the world. One person benefited from that financial wealth that he took as he conquered the world. Okay, there was no place for... Women, there was no place for you know minorities or this that and that thing it's a tremendous and there's still prejudice and racism and sexism but it's different now because you could you have the ability the possibility to rise above it you see it all around you whether it be Oprah Winfrey a black woman making two billion dollars when else would that have happened in history zero time in 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 modern you know in, in history. Have you had that self-made from poverty, didn't inherit the money? Okay, wanna make key differentiation there. So we live in the best of times. We live in opportunities, uh, in a world where the opportunities abound beyond what we can even take advantage of. Joel Salatin was at my house. Some of you might be in the Millionaire Mentor interview series and Joel Salatin said, Ty, I don't even know how people can sleep with all the opportunities. I can hardly sleep with all the opportunities coming across my uh, my desk of things I could do, this, this exciting, make money, change the world. It's just, it's all there. It's all there, but you have to adopt the new rule which you are gonna become an investor, and entrepreneur now. Let me define that. Investor, I do not mean invest in real estate, invest in the stock market, invest in gold. What I mean is the definition right here in this book by Buffett, uh, a few inv- lessons for investors and managers by Bevelin is that Someone willing to invest now to get more in the future that investment now I mean sometimes you're gonna have to read a book when everybody else is watching TV or playing video games. That's the investor mentality You're gonna have to maybe you know not drive a nice car at the beginning so that in the future you can have three nice cars have to put away for the future. That's the investor mentality. That's the opposite is the consumer mentality, which is what you're being what's being imposed upon you continually by right here in Hollywood. Because they want your money. to take back. The investor takes control of their life. Says, no, this life's played on my terms. The second part of that, because you know, they called it Philosopher Kings, that was the two part that Socrates talked about. I call this entrepreneur, investor entrepreneur. It's twofold, you're two things at once. The entrepreneur is the creative innovator that remakes the world in their own image. You may be a solo entrepreneur, or you may partner up with people, or you might even be an employee, there's nothing wrong. You can be an investor entrepreneur even as an employee. You can still invest in your own brain, reading, learning, mentoring, while being part of an organization. Entrepreneur, you can still have massive creativity within an organization. Depending on your personality type, you may be better off uh, working with other people versus alone. And for some of you, you need to strike out on your own. Point of this 67 steps is just kind of imbue, inject a new thought that times have changed, that you no longer have to be under that tyranny that people have had to be under for thousands, if not longer, of years. You have the ability to take back but it comes from this one simple thought, investor entrepreneur. So we'll continue to talk more about business. Some of you will progress from this or even now you can do both simultaneously. You may want, if you have any questions, you can just email support at tylopez.com or, or right above this video, there should be a link where you can see the mini MBA or the academy, we call it. Uh, uh, the business training, training how to become an investor entrepreneur. This is the highest, the pinnacle. The statistics show the same. Out of the 400 wealthiest people in the world, self-made, 77 of them are investors. And most of those investors are a subset of entre- they're entrepreneurs. They don't just buy stocks and day trade or something. Very few uh, people are like that. They're entrepreneurs. They're creative. They're remaking the world and that image that well, they have. Oh, I always wanted to travel and make money. Okay, then they figure out how to innovate. Like Bezos says, how to innovate your way out of wherever you are. So... Uh, the questions that I have for you. The first one is in what ways have you or are you under the tyranny of the first and 15th expenses? That must be paid. Number two, in what ways have you adopted the mentality of past ways of making money? The corporate nine to five mindset that maybe your parents had. Okay, and how's that holding you back? And number three, what's something tangible you can do immediately to start becoming an investor entrepreneur? Creativity coupled with investment in yourself through books, through programs, through seminars. Even this, what you're doing now is an example of you becoming an investor. Not a consumer where you just buy stuff that rots, and depreciates. You're focused all on cars and you're focused on the newest clothes, that's all making someone else rich. Focus just on music, focus on video games. You're just making other people rich. When are you gonna invest in yourself through creativity? Okay, so answer those three questions below in the community, look at what other people wrote, also write in the private journal. And uh, if you wanna email that to me, take a picture at tylopez.com, that'd be great. If not, keep that private and I will see you on the next uh, of the 67 steps. So thanks so much. All right, welcome to the next in the 67 steps, the guidelines, principles, rules of living a good life. So I call this one, and it's interesting because Tomorrow, I'm planning to go to uh, Joel Salatin's farm and uh, maybe visit the Amish. So this is an, this 67 steps has to do with uh, agriculture, farming, or at least that's where I learned the lesson. I call it Allen Nation's A Thousand Sheep and Not Doing It Small, The Framework to Scalability and Expansion. So in life especially business, but not necessarily business alone. Anything you're doing um, to really get traction, to really have impact, you have to have scalability. So if you look at, I don't know, uh, a business that's successful, let's take Apple. They started with iPhones. So the first thing that Apple did was they made a prototype. Here's the, the iPhone here. Let me unplug it. You got this, I got this new six plus or whatever it is. So they designed this thing and it probably cost them, I'm gonna guess, 20 or 30 million dollars to create the first prototype. You had the designer, uh, you had the plastic that you had to source and the, f- and the mold for the plastic and each of the electronic parts. You had to write the operating systems software. You had to get the marketing, figure out the box, figure out the color, so on. And then you had to test it, all this all this stuff. So it's very expensive to make the first one. Now, the way that Apple has become, you know, basically the largest company in the world is by then taking that hard work they put in, in the beginning and then scaling it up to the point where whatever one in three or four of every people in the Western world has one of these devices in their hands. So that's scalability. Now that applies not just to business, but it also applies to reading books, right? You don't wanna just learn how to read and then read one book. You wanna get better at reading and then be able to scale that to where you're reading one book a month, one book a week, one book a day, right? That's still the path to scalability. You figure out a methodology, then you grow it. If it comes to exercise, you figure out, the hard part is figuring out What type of exercise do you like? Are you going to be a marathon sprinter? I mean, marathon jogger, a sprinter? Are you going to like team sports? Are you going to like martial arts or combat kind of stuff? Are you going to be CrossFit or a power lifter? Once you figure out that, you got to test, see what works best for you, and then you scale it up. by Like Arnold Schwarzenegger, he scaled up to six hours a day of bodybuilding, and that gave him that huge impact in that field. So... When I was talking to, you know, this question of how you build scalability is not an easy one and one of the uh, pieces of advice I've always remembered since I was 19 or 20 years old came from Alan Nation and Alan Nation said, Ty, it's kind of like raising sheep on a farm. He said the hard part about sheep is that, let's say you have a day job, like you have a regular nine to five job, but you your goal is you want to become a sheep farmer. So, you get 50 sheep on day one. He said the problem with 50 sheep right away is that you're not really knowing what you're doing. It's gonna take you three or four hours a day, but you don't make, 50 sheep will not make you an income to replace your main job. That means you got your main job to juggle, but now you have 50 sheep you gotta take care of too, and you run out of time in the day, so you end up failing, right? So he said, you can't start out with 50 or 100 sheep. It's too much. And you see this a lot with business, people biting off more than they can can chew. The average person that comes in with a business idea tells me they're a billion dollar idea or what they think is a billion dollar idea. And I'm like, well, why are you starting uh, with a billion dollar idea? That's like starting with 300 sheep and you've never even raised sheep. You never even had a business before. It's one thing to go after a billion dollar business if you've done some other ones before. And sure, there's exceptions of people who figure out their first business how to make a billion dollars. But if you look at the statistics, we talked about things you can quantify mathematically. The odds are against you if your first chance, first attempt, is more than you know, trying to bite off more than you can chew. So uh, you see that with health, people will like go, "I'm going to lose you know 300 pounds." Well, if you're that far overweight, why don't you just try to lose 10 pounds, right? Now again, the problem though is if you only try to lose ten pounds, sometimes you won't feel the encouragement to get, make you excited, to make you want to lose twenty pounds. That's the same problem that you have when you're raising sheep. If you only have thirty sheep, it's enough work that is distracting and annoying, but it's not enough income so you get uh, to replace your day job, so you get discouraged. So what Alan nation said is here's the key and this is the key point of this lesson is that what you do is you start out with like three sheep five sheep okay that seems obvious but there's one little catch one little caveat how you want to do that So a five sheep sheep obviously um, you're not gonna it's not gonna take many hours a day you can still keep your day job and so on because five sheep you can take care of in five minutes or something. But here's where the catch comes in. You must raise those five sheep, not like most people do. The way most people will treat five sheep is they won't put them into an organized kind of um, uh, method of raising the sheep. They'll name them all. Oh, this is Susie, my you know Betty, Bob, and and they treat them like pets. And when you treat them like pets, and you spend five minutes with each sheep, and you you know before you feed them, you rub their head and you talk to them and all this the problem is if you try to scale to 500 sheep you can't spend five minutes a piece with 500 sheep so what most people do is when they start out small they make another error in that they don't treat it as if they're gonna grow so if you knew that you have five sheep now but soon you're gonna have 500 you'd start building Uh, automated systems to feed the sheep. You'd make sure that instead of maybe calling them names, you'd put little number tags on them. Even though you could remember the name of five, you're preparing yourself for the time, the moment when you're gonna scale because what Alan Nation said is you have to raise five sheep in a way uh, the same kind of automated, well thought out uh, system that you're going to then jump straight from five to five hundred. So you're going to put in the time, you're going to put in the effort to build the business model of five sheep. So you're like, I need a barn, I need this amount of hay, I need sources of hay. I'm not just going to feed them by hand because sure, that works for five, but it won't work for five hundred. So I'm going to build, you know, I'm going to build five sheep feeders, little hay places to hold the hay. And again, you're doing overkill when it's for those five because obviously you don't need a hay feeder for five. You could feed them out of your hand if you wanted. Okay, but, but but, it's the same thing with where you let them go out on pasture. You wouldn't let them just mow your backyard for you. You'd be like, I want to build a fence. I want to maybe set up different pastures for them that I could rotate. And again, people, your friends might come over and go, you're crazy. You only got five sheep. You're setting all this up. And you say, yeah, because... I'm practicing on five, so that it's manageable, so that I don't burn out, so that I don't fail, and so that I can keep my other income coming in at my other job. Then, maybe it'll take you a week, maybe it'll take you a month, maybe it'll take you a year, maybe it'll take you 18 months. But there will be a day when you go, I got it. Five sheep are only taking me five seconds of work a day, one second per sheep. I've got it. I, you know, the water is automated, coming in, you know, an automatic water float that lets the water in. I've got the pastures all set up. Got the hay. It literally takes me whatever five seconds, sixty seconds a day. So now if five sheep take me sixty seconds. Let's say that's a minute. Then five hundred sheep would be a hundred minutes a day. That's an hour, two hours a day. That's a realistic thing, uh, way to manage 500 sheep, then you could literally go to 5,000 sheep, right? Hire a couple people. So the path to scalability is, oh, and let me say, when you jump to 500 sheep, that's enough income to quit your job. So when it comes to health, wealth, love, and happiness, you wanna take the same approach with health. You wanna go, okay, what's a realistic exercise plan that I could do one minute a day now sure I want to eventually be like Arnold Schwarzenegger and I want to be bench pressing six hours I mean lifting weights six hours a day but first set up your gym set up a way that you got your food prepared for you and try it on a small scale 10 minute exercise program two minute exercise just don't treat it lackadaisically don't treat it in kind of a you know all over the way scattered approach have a real approach to it. Okay, got a 10 minute approach to this thing. I only do 10 minutes, but it's all set up and it'd be very easy for me to do 20 minutes. So maybe you need to get a little part of your house, apartment, garage, set up some gym equipment there. You're not gonna use it all, but it's ready and you're practicing experiment When it comes to wealth, business, it's the same thing. A lot of people ask me, should I quit my job? Well, you can try this scalability, this 1,000 sheep that Alan Nation taught me. I don't know, this is not something can hear taught anywhere else, unfortunately, but you can help me spread the word with the 67 steps by referring your friends. But for you now, uh, you go, all right, business. I know that I want to start a restaurant. I want to know, I want to start an internet business. Okay, let me not go into this and treat it as a hobby. Let me treat it as a miniature version so that the day when I'm ready to spend eight hours a day on this and quit my other job, I already know everything I need to do. It's all been tested on a miniature scale. When it comes to friendship, I see the same thing. People are like, I wanna be able to speak in front of a thousand people. I wanna be able to you know, make friends, influence people everywhere I go. Well, you don't really wanna start there. Start out in uh, a way where you practice on five people. Right. But you do it in a way, even if they're your friends, maybe pretend they're not your friends. Ask them to do a little scenario with you if you're super shy. Like, hey, I need to get out more. I'm gonna pretend like, act like you don't know me. Act, you know, rude to me or something and I wanna see if I can come up with what I wanna say. And then when the day comes, when there's 500 people, you'll be able to make that leap very easily. And with happiness, it's the same thing. If you're an unhappy person, if you're depressed, see if you can figure up a system that gives you five minutes of happiness in the day. Most people, that's possible. If you find even the most depressed person, some little thing will make them happy for five minutes. Then they'll go back to their darkness. And But the thing is, if they can be happy for five minutes, then it's probably not a full-fledged psychological issue. That's, you know, it's like if you're blind, you're blind 24 hours a day. If you can see five minutes a day, you're not fully blind. So if you're an unhappy person, but you find glimpses and glimmers of happiness in your life, you can use this five sheep, thousand sheep analogy. You can start out five minutes of happiness, figure out what you're doing there, finish, figure out what's working, and you scale to a thousand minutes of happiness. Now you'll notice this is very similar to this experimentation modality that we talked about. And I've adapted some of what, you know, when Alan told me this, it was much less about uh, the other areas of life. He was really talking about business, but I've learned that a lot of these things that apply to business apply to everything in your life. So for you, again, um, some of the pitfalls that people make just specifically with this is it. it's all about systems, right? So you've got to have systems. I was reading a, a I forget what business guy it was, but he had an exact system how he made connections. He didn't like to go to other people's parties because he said that psychologically when you go to other people's parties, it's kind of all about them and it's harder to um, to really make an impact and people remember you. So he said, I never go to other people's parties, but I throw a lot of parties at my house every Monday. And he had set up a system. Every Monday was, you know, a poker night or something like that and five of his close friends would come and he would ask each of those friends to bring a friend with him and slowly he did this step by step year after year and it grew into him having a thousand acquaintances you know I don't know if it's exactly a thousand but you see the principle boom to boom when I was getting in the, in the nightclub business I started out I didn't have much. I lived in an apartment in North Carolina with a roommate, Navon, and uh, I kind of knew I wanted to go in that direction. I was I was going out anyway, and I was like, ah, oh, this would be fun, So I, so I just started on a really small scale with inviting friends over to watch a UFC Ultimate Fighter fight. First fight, I think 20 to 40 people came. And it wasn't—I had—I didn't—wasn't applying this principle very well. Although I did remember Allen Nations' word, and I kind of set it up all right. I had, you know, I had the food set up, the drinks. I had someone taking care of it. It was all kind of like a nice, organized thing. People came, had a good time. The next one, I was like, okay, we can scale this thing up. And I, I remember I rented a big TV because we didn't have a big enough TV. So I rented it. It was like three hundred dollars. I was like, "How am I going to handle $300?" I didn't have $300, so I said, "Let's charge everybody. If we got to expect 50 people to come, let's charge everyone, you know, five or ten bucks donation." Sure enough, I paid for the pizzas, TV. Everybody had fun, but I filled up like a more people came than could fit in my apartment. The apartment complex was like, "You can't have that many people." So I then reached out to a guy that owned a, or a friend said, "Talk to my friend Giorgio. has a restaurant in Durham, and and it just started and." There's not a lot of people there uh, yet cause and he'd love someone to promote it probably. So I went to him and he said, sure, you can use it on a, I think it was a Tuesday night. It's a place called Verde. I don't know if it's still there, but um, I went there and the first thing, 200 people came to that. That one grew quite a bit. Uh, and that's when I learned you needed bouncers because we were trying to charge money and we had some girls or something at the front asking for money and people just run by, walk right by them. And there was no one, you know, you need a big, there to say, hold on, pay the money. So that was where I was raising, but I was still smart. It was still small enough. It wasn't a disaster. I hadn't like rented out a whole Coliseum and forgot security. So I learned on a relatively small scale. Okay, to raise a thousand cheap, you gotta be able to do this. So I made all my mistakes small. I made scalability. I reached out, I found a security team. I remember this, I put an ad need, need bouncers and this woman answered and she said, I got a security team. And I was like, oh, I was thinking men, but whatever. So she came and she was this big woman, prison guard. She was six foot five. She got Linda was her name. And I said, oh, well, I, I that thanks. Do you have any other people that can help you? And she said, oh yeah, I've got five minutes. My friend Chris is coming. And she goes, I'm not really gonna be the one. I just run the company. And this Chris guy rolled in and he was seven foot two. 500 pound guy i'll never forget when he stepped step out of the door i was like this is going to be a good guy so he and i are still friends and he helped me scale out from that verde that club that was 200 and we grew that to parazod different restaurants spice street these things we'd have a thousand or two thousand people so i learned how to systematize it all the components the bouncers the door people i learned you needed ropes i learned Learned you needed a certain kind of promotion, but I did it all on 50 people in my apartment, then 100, then 200, all small enough. By the way, I was it was small enough at that point. I was only doing them once uh, or twice a month, so I was able to keep my other job working in finance at the same time. But then a day came when I had made all, all my not all of them, but I made most of the mistakes. Worked the kinks out got the automated systems, had the people on the support team in my role, you know, my phone to call, and then it was time and we, boom, jumped to a thousand people where you started making enough money that literally, I didn't quit my other job, but but I could have if I wanted. I ended up doing those two companies at once, but you see, that's the path to scalability and you can apply it in almost every area in life. So. The questions here, the first question I have for you is, what's an example where you ignored this rule and just either stayed really small, so small it never grew that you got discouraged, or number two, what's an example where you just jumped right into a thousand sheep and you maybe lost a lot of money or got burned out or, or something traumatic happened, okay? And number three, what's a simple idea that you can start practicing on five sheep, okay? Some things you can start doing to practice so that when the time comes, you can make the big leap, okay? Answer those three questions here in the video below. Fill them out in your private journal there. Uh, If you wanna send me a copy of that, a picture of it to tylopez.com, that'd be great. And uh, don't forget this one, it's an important one. A lot of the guys that run my companies in different uh, investments that I do, They say this is one of their favorite ones that they remember for a long time. So, um, anyway, I'll see you on the next of the 67 steps. All right, welcome to the next in the 67 steps, guidelines, principles, downloading the world's smartest thinkers throughout history. What they learned about success through trial and error, through decades uh, of their life experience, we're now getting he, here, you and I together in the 67 steps. So uh, remember, it's not about me and my opinions. I've tried to build this system um, from a variety of sources, like the old Proverbs go, goes, uh, make war with a multitude of counselors. So we've taken all these different things, thinkers, great thinkers, great thoughts, and brought them together. So this one I call the 5% tweak, nothing janky, and when good enough is perfect. The paradox of perfectionism. So most people uh, fall in one or the other extreme, you know, a broad kind of spectrum here. So you're probably the same way. Extreme number one is you tend to jump into things. You leave them half done. Uh, You, you know, they're sloppy, but you get a lot of stuff done, right? You're more about volume and speed in terms of trying stuff. So maybe you're always trying a new diet. Maybe you're always trying a new workout plan. Uh, Maybe you're somebody who's, you know, you just kind of slop it together. You don't really you work out, but you don't keep track of it. You're just like, oh, I'm working out, but I, you know, I'm I'm getting skinny. Or maybe when it comes to business, you know, your desk is all sloppy. You don't really have systems for your employees. You don't really. It's just kind of. But you get stuff done, right? And you're not paralyzed when you want to do something. You just do it. Uh, when it comes to you know social life, you're the same way. When you're in a room, you're friends with people. Maybe you don't follow up. Maybe after. Dinners and and meeting people—you don't send thank you notes. You're just kind of, but you're, you know, you're a likable person. Or when it comes to happiness, kind of the same way. You haven't really perfected your life into a whole system. You're not an engineer. That's one extreme. And uh, others of you watching this, you may be an engineering type, right? You're not going to launch a business till you have every business plan part completely. Uh, uh, laid out for you. You're not going to quit your job until you completely understand where new sources of revenue. You're not going to do a new diet until you've weighed out each meal and you've gone shopping and you've got the perfect shopping list and you've read a few books about it and you've done your research and, you know, when it comes to friends, maybe you don't have as many friends, but the friends you have, you're very good about keeping up and remembering their birthday. You're not sloppy. When it comes to your happiness, you know, you're tracking things, you have a gratitude journal and you're being sure and you're very into self-help and all this kind of stuff. You're precise, but you know, you're know you not like the other extreme. Things aren't sloppy, but sometimes you struggle with getting stuff off the ground. You get a new idea, you've had some idea in your head for 10 years and you've never been able to take action on it. So that's what we're talking about today. It's very important to understand you know, perfectionism versus kind of momentum builders this first extreme I talked about is a momentum builder. You have no, you have no trouble getting something going. The ball rolls easily with you. A new idea comes in your head. You start it the same day. You're not a procrastinator. When you get inspired, things happen. Uh, And that's a momentum builder. And then on the other extreme, some of you are perfectionists. Now the first thing to kind of set the stage for this is you must understand there is no right or wrong. is a lion eating a gazelle in the African savannah, is that good or bad? You and I would struggle with a judgment call on whether that's good or bad. What you could say is a lion at the San Diego Zoo who escapes and eats a kid or you know attacks and mauls 20 people, that's bad in the sense that the lion didn't really get what it wanted. It, It already had food. And the people certainly didn't get what they wanted. They wanted to have a nice day at the zoo. So that's a lose-lose. A lion on the savannah though, the right animal in the right setting is as close to perfection as you're going to get in a natural biological ecosystem. The lion is there to take out the weak, the slow, the older, the diseased gazelles. It's very important to have that predator. You know, now I was reading a book about the oceans. It's called Bottom Feeder, and so many sharks are being killed uh, that people that there's a not enough natural predators. So various species uh, of fish, or I think jellyfish. Don't quote me on it, but there's too many of them now because we've eliminated predators, or you know, these great whites or various sharks. So. The lesson there from nature, and I always like to go to, I just came back from being on the farm with Joel Salatin and Amish. What I like is to look for natural biological solutions to uh, our human problems. So a lion has a place in the right setting, it's right. In the wrong setting, it's wrong. It's not the lion that's the issue, it's the context. So your perfectionism or your momentum quick Sloppiness. You must stop being guilt, feeling guilty for it, okay? Because some of it is personality, and we know that our personalities, our DNA is somewhat malleable, but it's in, within certain, you know, bounded rationality. If you're a extremely naturally introverted person, you're you may not want to try to become the most extroverted person in the world. You could work a little bit and and refine a little bit of the uh, of those. Uh, tendencies so that you have a little broader audience but a lion is a lion is a lion and we want lions to be lions so if you're a perfectionist you don't need to feel guilty for it but you must have a few tools because if you find yourself in the realities of life it's not realistic that if you are an introverted person you can be introverted for every day every situation you find yourself in for the next 20 years. No, there's going to be a situation where it calls for you to step up, to get on stage, to speak, and there's nothing you can do about it except shore up or strengthen some of those natural weaknesses that you have in that context. The lion only is weak in a certain context. If you drop a lion in the middle of the ocean, cats don't like water much, most cats. So it's weak. So in that ocean context, the lion's out of place and you're gonna find yourself out of place. So, it's the second thing. Just know that you can't set up your life completely perfect around all your strengths. That would only happen in an egocentric world. You Can't be so egocentric to go, well, I'll never find myself in a different situation. You will find yourself in a different situation. So, you don't need to feel guilty. You will under- know that you will find yourself in a situation that calls for something that's not your natural personality, aptitude, you know, char- uh, character. So number three is, let's go through a few tools that will help you uh, in when you find yourself out of your element. So, you know the first one I called uh, the five percent tweak. So as you work on refining yourself, so that if you are a lion, when you accidentally get dropped in the water, you know how to swim. So if you are an introvert you'll know how to be extroverted when the time comes, or if you're an extrovert, you'll know how to be quiet when the time comes. Or if you're an ultra-perfectionist and the time comes you need to launch a new business or you need to start a new diet or you need to make some new friends, you can get it off the ground like that. Even though that's not your natural element, you can do it when you need a burst of new energy. So the 5% tweak says, you know, I got this from my business partner, John Dewar. He said, you know, Ty, what you want to do a lot of us think about change as this massive change. But he said, just make a 5% tweak at a time. Uh, if you are on my book of the day email, the summary emails I sent, I sent a book of the day summary uh, recently called, about the book, No Hero, about Navy SEALs. And it talks about the author, Mark, uh, where Mark was doing his SEAL training. He was on his rocks outside of Las Vegas doing this intense you know they're literally a thousand feet up and he looked down and got paralyzed and so the uh, Navy SEAL rock climbing instructor quickly climbed up there with him he said and and uh, he whispered in Mark's ear he said man just focus on the your three-foot world so he was saying if you look around and you look how far down it is it is a far drop and if you focus too much on that, you're gonna forget about finding the next rock hold three foot away from you, and you're gonna fall and you're gonna die. That's a similar concept to this 5%. When you are going through life and you find yourself presented with massive changes you need to make. You need to lose 100 pounds. You need to quit your job. You need to change who you're dating. The over, if you start looking way down Way into the future. Oh man, I'm gonna, you know, if I launch this business and this and that and that, whoa, well, I'm gonna be broke, or if I leave whoever I'm dating because they're not the right person for me, I know that I'm gonna be lonely for the next 10 years, or you know, I gotta lose a hundred pounds, that seems impossible. No. Focus on your three-foot world. If you can, if you need to get away from a bad friend, family, or dating or love relationship, just focus on how can you survive one day without them? That's the 5% tweak. If you need to lose 100 pounds, 5% of that's five pounds. Just focus on losing five pounds, because once you lose five pounds, you can lose another five. The hard part the first five. Like they say, the hard part in life is making your first million. Once you make your first million, it's easier to make the next five million. That initial momentum is hard. Uh, if you are in business, people, I was just on my inner circle business call. Some of you might be in the inner circle. That's my invitation only more advanced. And I was on the mini MBA. Some of you are on that. But I have three levels, by the way. The 67 steps is level one. We talked about life in general. Uh, if you're, Hopefully you're in the level one VIP. The level one VIP allows you to be on the calls twice a month with me. If you're not on that, uh, uh, reach out, send an email, get on that twice a month, you can talk to me live, uh, not just recorded like this. We go through books, we do the 24 book challenge, two books a month for the next 12 months, you're gonna read 24 books. So enter it, get in that VIP program. Uh, but I was talking about level two and level three, you know, or somebody asked me, that's where I can answer questions live. And they said, Ty, you know, I'm starting a business, but I feel paralyzed, you know, how do I do I, do more research, do I launch the business? They're kind of perfectionists, And I said, look, Peter Drucker says the purpose of business is what? It's not to make a profit, it's not to start a charity, It's to create a customer, somebody who never did business with you. Your business is a facilitation, it's the conduit through which you take this idea that you as an entrepreneur uh, created and developed and you pass it on to what we call a customer. That means someone who does business with you. That is the definition of business. So focus on your three-foot world. Make a 5% tweak. Find one paying customer. Charge them a dollar a month. That's what I do. Even if I'm gonna charge 100 a month, Sam Walton built Walmart. One of the things he did was samples. Joel Salton used to tell me, sample? I have a lot of people, if I'm gonna launch something $50 a month, I'll do a beta launch, and it's a dollar. If I talk to waiters, waitresses, my friends, family, just see if anybody wants it. Create a little bit of momentum. That's the 5% tweak, otherwise known as focusing on your 3%, I mean, your three-foot world. Now, the next thing, because I've lumped a few subjects together here about change, momentum. It's a good book, by the way, on, on stuff like this. It's called Switch by the by Heath. It's actually one of the books I talk about in the VIP program. So the next thing is nothing janky. So what I just said was more. the 5% is more for you perfectionists, you people who really, you get good ideas, but you feel paralyzed. Uh, There's something called uh, bounded rationality or optimal stopping. It's one divided by E. A Ferguson professor came up with it in the 60s. It's the mathematical explanation of, how much information you should take in before you just begin. And and the answer, one divided by E is 38, I think, 0.6%. Colin Powell called it the 40-70 rule. So this 5% tweak, this three-foot world, you know, you can begin acting once you have about 40% of the available info. You don't need 100%. But let me flip on the other side now. Nothing janky. Some of you or at some points in your life you may have been in the opposite extreme you started too soon you didn't gather enough info you didn't plan enough you must avoid that extreme you know synthesis and I mean uh, thesis antithesis the two extremes you must find the synthesis the balance this is an ancient philosophical tool so if you are somebody who launches too quickly who jumps in a diet too quickly bites off more you can chew, who starts a lot of things but never finishes. You must remember this saying: "nothing janky." Now the word "janky is slang. It basically means you know, I'll give you an example right now. <laughs> uh, I have a little office we're developing for some more employees, and I walked in and it was just sloppy. I mean, the desk wasn't put together, right? So I was like, wobbly a whiteboard was like, oh, I'm about to fall off. And I said, guys, what are you doing? And they said, well, Ty, you just said, you know, build some momentum. Good enough is perfect. Don't be a perfectionist, 5%, focus on the three-foot world. We just focus, you know, we got the board up. We got the desk there. And I said, yeah, but it's janky. It's too sloppy. Like, spend an extra two minutes and fully screw in the table leg so it's not about to fall over. You know, get a level and spend two more minutes hanging the whiteboard. I'm not asking you to be a perfectionist engineer and find the circumference of the earth in relationship to the level that you use and check the accuracy of the level and weld together the desk with an extra support beam so that if an earthquake comes. I'm not talking about being a hyper-perfectionist, but there's a fine line when it crosses into the realm of janky sloppiness. You can't do that either. Some of you launch on a off of the business without even spending a week or a day doing research on competitors, what you can learn from them. You just thought, oh, you got the idea today, five minutes later you start. Well, that seems like a great plan, but at times that might be appropriate, but at other times you're gonna be the lion, you know, out in the ocean. You're going to be the lion out of the cage at the zoo doing damage to yourself because they're going to, a lion that goes out and attack people, that lion might get put down. The wrong, a lion in the middle of New York City is going to have a hostile audience. And the same way you're going to have a hostile business environment, maybe you're somebody who just, so one friend's like, you should try vegan or you should try Atkins or paleo. And you're like, oh, I'm going to try that diet. No preparation. You just, you know, you're like, I'm gonna do Atkins diet, so you're just eating pork bacon nonstop. That's not what the Atkins diet, do a little research, take a little time, you know, that cliche, something worth doing is worth doing right. You could also say the opposite, something worth doing is worth doing wrong, and that's okay. You'll notice there's a lot of sayings on both sides. There's sayings like, Joel Salton used to say, good enough is perfect. He used to say, do something even if it turns out to be the wrong thing. That's true, that's momentum building. But that's for people who get paralyzed easy. You must know yourself. I talk a lot about this. People ask me what's the foundational principle of living a good life. And I believe now after much research that I've gone back old school with Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, the oracle Delphi said thousands of years ago. Know thyself. So you must know yourself if you are a perfectionist paralyzed oftentimes from action. You must learn some of the momentum building skills. You must. You don't need to learn nothing janky because you're already not sloppy. You're too unsloppy, you're too non-janky. You need to just create momentum by going, good enough is perfect, good enough is perfect. You need to be somebody who goes, I just need a 5% tweak, focus on my 3% world, get one customer, lose a f- few pounds, boom, boom, boom. You know, get 40 to 70%, Colin Powell goes with the 47-year-old. Don't get 100% of the available knowledge. Don't wait to start a business till you have 100% of knowledge, that's too much. Optimal stopping is 40 to 70%. Just gather enough info. But you may be the opposite extreme. Know yourself if you are a janky, sloppy person who constantly has good ideas that you're great at getting momentum but they always fail because the door, the, the thing falls off the wall and the desk falls apart. And, you didn't do your research, so you end up building a business around something that there is no customer base or somebody's already doing it better than you, you have no innovative idea, no moat protecting your business from competitive factors, then you need to go, nothing janky, nothing janky, 40-70 rule. I can't start when I only have 1% of the available info. I need to at least get 40%. Find that balance. So, questions I have for you. Number one, what is an example In your life where you have been paralyzed, okay, paralyzed by inaction because you were waiting to gather more than 70% of the available information you didn't know to just focus on the three-foot world, to just do little 5% tweaks. That good enough sometimes is perfect in some settings. What's an example of that? Write that below to finish this. Remember, each of these six, seven steps, I want you to leave a comment here. Number two, okay. Uh, what is an example on the other extreme where you've been sloppy, where you didn't even gather forty percent of the information, where you you know you went where angels fear to tread, like the old saying goes, where no thought, where an extra two minutes, you could have fixed the desk a little better, an extra couple days of planning, you would have made that diet, you would have picked the appropriate diet plan or done it better. It's an example there okay thirdly what are you gonna do to be the lion in the right place what's your overall new strategy okay those first two questions are what you did wrong and now what are you gonna do differently in general in life okay you can be specific or general so write that below here to complete this lesson uh, this step or and also remember you should have your 67 steps journal where you're writing down some private things you want to you want to participate in this community, but you also want to do that. Also, by the way, uh, if you're not in, uh, if, if you're advanced business, you want to apply for the Inner Circle, there should be a link. Uh, and if you're not in the uh, mini MBA, the business level two, if you're not quite, you know, Inner circles, if you're making millions already. If you're just starting out or you've just got a business uh, going and you want to grow it, then that level two, that uh, investor entrepreneur mini MBA program, there should be a link above to get more info. If you're still wanting to get more just out of the 67 steps, there should be a VIP program link where you can get on this twice a month where we do the 24 book challenge where you come on live stuff and you get more out of the 67 steps than you do just going through this. Okay? So I will see you soon on the next 67 steps. Thanks so much. All right, welcome to the next In the 67 Steps, guidelines, principles. We're going to one of the greats of all time in sports today to learn, uh, and also one of the top, or I think the record-holding TV show. Learning from the best isn't just learning from the best individuals, but also learning from the great concepts uh, wherever we can find them. So I call this one uh, Michael Jordan's Swagger and American, uh, American Idol Syndrome the truth about humility, pride, and delusion. So this is a pretty, you know, in some ways is a controversial thing, a uh, concept and topic because there's a lot of misinformation about this subject. Most everything you've heard uh, growing up on one, uh, one, will be one side or the other. As always, we've talked a lot about this, finding the happy balance in between. So as you go through life, there's... Uh, really two extremes in terms of being confident. Confidence at its core is one of the key components to finding a good life, right? No matter how you slice it biologically, scientifically, psychologically, confidence exists as a tool for your brain to garner enough uh, um, faith to take the risks that you'll need to take call that, you know, smart risk-taking and confidence is the foundational element that you need. So it's a tool that's big enough that like money, when it's wielded incorrectly by fools, it causes tremendous loss, you know, financially and in all areas. So for you, the first, I think, uh, lesson of this step, is understanding how someone who achieved amazing results, Michael Jordan, arguably the greatest basketball player of all time, possibly the greatest athlete of all time, certainly uh, in the running for that category. If you read his book, I think I have it here somewhere. It's one of my recommended books. Oh, here it is. Right here, this black one. Um, Michael Jordan, The Life. It's by Roland Lazenby. Roland Lazenby, uh, I talked to him. I actually have a talk that I did with him, a little interview, talked to him about this book because he's been following Michael Jordan since I think Michael Jordan was a high school athlete back in 1979, I think, 80, something like that. So he knows about this man that many people almost consider, you know, semi, a demi, you know, only part human. That's what a lot of people like Steve Kerr. basketball player says about michael jordan he goes there's everybody else then there's michael jordan there's a lot to learn from this guy because michael jordan's level of confidence at a certain level was almost beyond comprehension and could come off to some people as boastful maybe a little braggy you know bragged arrogant but if you read the people who know him there's a good line in that book, I'll try to paraphrase it, by Coach Dean Smith who was Michael Jordan's college basketball coach and Dean Smith said, he's never met somebody more teachable than Michael Jordan. So there was this blend of tremendous confidence but that confidence did not sabotage teachability. It did not sabotage going out and finding those great coaches. Phil Jackson, his pro basketball coach, said the same thing about Michael Jordan. It was a recurring theme that Michael Jordan listened better than anyone else. So if there could be one kind of uh, archetype that you and I could adopt, it would be some of this swagger, this confidence coupled with massive levels of teachability, the ability to listen. Now, I'm just throwing thing. one thing Alan Nation told me, he said, Ty, you know, the secret to life is to ignore 99 out of 100 people, but when you find that one that truly knows what they're talking about, that true expert, listen and do everything they say. And I think Michael Jordan was like that. He had an ability to, um uh, I wouldn't say ignore, but maybe ignore is the right word to ignore and tune out Almost all of the noise There's a lot of noise in the world If you're not careful, you'll find yourself doing what I call democratic listening Democratic listening is a horrible thing now democracy might work well when it comes to government, but it doesn't work well when it comes to listening Democratic means everybody gets one vote. So let's say you're trying to lose weight. You ask 100 people. Well, are all 100 people in great shape? Why are you asking somebody that's 100 pounds overweight? Why not follow what Alan Nation said or what Michael Jordan would do and tune them out? But then when you find somebody who was 100 pounds overweight and is cut down and is in amazing shape, then you perk up. Now, when you begin to listen to them, and then you find another person who has the same story of being out of shape and getting in tremendous good shape, or maybe you find somebody who went rags to riches financially, started a business, learned how to invest, all those things financially, or maybe you find somebody who has a happy marriage. You want to, you know, have a happy marriage. You find somebody married thirty years. I was just with my aunt; they were married. She was married before my uncle died for sixty five. I think she said sixty five years pretty happily married, too. I'm sure they had their ups and downs, but you know, they got along. Again, how, uh, or I'm sorry, again, why would we listen to her? She got a track record, and then you tune out all the other people who wanna democratically, your, your gut feelings to democratically listen. Oh, you, you've been divorced 10 times? Well, let me talk to you. Now, I'm not judging people who've been divorced. I'm saying pick the outcome you want, So if your goal is to have 10 divorces, then you listen to the 10 divorce person. I'm not judging, that's outside of the realm of what I do here. I'm just talking about getting what you want. I will judge certain things in the sense that we know scientifically and biologically that there's certain things you must achieve or you're gonna be living a suboptimum life. So, you know, I'm non-judgmental and judgmental at the same time. But on that subject, you know, love is a hard one because people have a lot of conceptions about it. But listen to those people that are giving you that outcome. And what that does is give you the Michael Jordan swagger because once you've done that enough, guess what? You're going to come off as cocky to some people. You see, you're going to find one, two, three, four, five mentors, honorary advisors, I call them, but your board of advisors, people who give you tremendous insight and can back it up with science, with their research, with their experience, and you are going to gain a level of confidence that's not delusional, we're gonna talk about that in a second, that's Michael Jordan swagger. See, Michael Jordan learned from Coach Dean Smith. Don't Coach Dean Smith is one of the most famous and recognized uh, and accomplished basketball coaches who, and he's been able to coach a lot of people to success. And so Michael Jordan looked at the cues, looked at the obvious signs and said, this is somebody that I can listen to. And he put it, once he did listen, he did like Alan Nation said. He listened to everything that Coach Smith said, and Michael Jordan in this book says, I listened to Coach Smith even when it seemed like he was, that Coach Smith was wrong. That's the level of humility, that when you find the right people, you defer to them even when it seems counter to your sense because you don't have intuition yet on success because you haven't done it. That's why you're listening to them. So from that will emanate non-delusional confidence that to some people, especially to people who fail a lot, will come off as cocky. But it's not cocky if you're proceeding with knowledge. That's not cockiness or arrogance in a negative connotation. That's confidence that if you listen to others and you follow in the tried and true path and Follow the quote unquote recipe that you will get the same cake as everybody else. If you listen to the best cake chef in the world and you get their exact recipe on paper and you watch a video of them making it and then you go train with them in person and you put in your time and you put in your dues, you can confidently say, yeah, I'll make a cake that's about as good as theirs. And fools, people who don't put in the time, who don't know who to listen, who listen democratically to people who don't know how to make good cakes, you'll sound confident, overconfident. You'll sound even arrogant and they'll say, oh, you know, look at that. Look at that person. They think they can make a great cake. Well, you can because you're proceeding from knowledge, practice, experience, mentors, all of those things. What you don't want to be though, and you and I must guard ourselves is from the commitment consistency bias, from the bias of over-optimism. Alan Greenspan, in his book, The Map and the Territory 2.0 said, he believes that the over-optimism is the most prevalent human cognitive bias. That is arrogance. And I see that all the time here in Hollywood. And even as I travel around the world, I meet people saying, I know I'm gonna make it. Why do you know you're gonna make it? That's not a law of physics. Don't be confident in things that don't, apply to laws of nature, biology, physics, math. Like Descartes said, math is one of those things we can pretty much know is true, at least in the, within the bounds of the universe that we live in now. Uh, so there's no universal physics law that you will succeed just because your mom patted you on the back or because you appear to yourself to be likely to succeed. I hate that bias it bothers me because, not because I hate the person, but because I hate that it's working against them towards what they want. That's why in this book, Bounce, if you hopefully you're getting my uh, book of the day deals now that we're starting to sell books along with bonuses. And I talk about one of the, uh, I think it was Dweer or Dweck did a, a researcher, did research and they couldn't believe the results. The results showed that parents who compliment their children for being intelligent, actually harm their child's future potential why because then the child falls back on arrogance that's not proceeding from reality it's delusional it's not enough to be born with high iq in fact iiq uh, iq intelligence quotient only measures the capacity so it's like a glass if you have a high iq you have a, a tall glass like a slurpy big gulp if you have low iq your glass is is relatively small but the the point is somebody with a full glass, a high IQ could only fill it up that much. And somebody with a small glass could fill it up to the brim to overflowing. And that person is actually exercising more knowledge, wisdom and uh, intelligence in the truest sense in day to day actions. So that person could be cocky. I'm sorry, could be uh, confident. And this person who has this big glass but hadn't filled it up, they're cocky. Michael Jordan wasn't cocky. He had swagger. He backed up what he said. He won six NBA championships. He won scoring title over and over. He won defensive player and he led the league in free throws and assists and defense, you know, all steals, all this stuff. Anything he put his mind to, three point contest, dunk contest. The man was a machine. And now, as a general manager, he wasn't as good to start with, but he's a billionaire now from his ownership of a basketball team. Not too, you know, shabby. It seems maybe as he got a little older, he forgot the lessons he learned when he was younger and didn't listen quite as much. I don't know the story. I'm reading a book about Jordan after he after he retired. He made a lot more mistakes and I believe if you study it, it seems to be he started proceeding without knowledge, without seeking out insight. Magic Johnson, another basketball player, very interesting. You know, he retired from basketball. He, he was diagnosed with HIV if you remember back in uh, 1994, I think it was, or 93, and he retired from basketball. But he's gone on to be one of the most successful businessmen uh, in the world. He's a billionaire, I think he's at the billion, 500 to a billion dollars. And remember, he started with some money, of course, being a pro athlete, but he grew that when most pro athletes lose it all. And I read a story, I don't know if it's true, someone was telling a story that when Magic Johnson was retiring, He walked around on his last game to to the front row seats at the Laker Stadium Here at the Staples Center or the forum or wherever it was and remember The people who can buy front row seats in Los Angeles for Laker games are the wealthiest most successful business people here in In Los Angeles in Hollywood, and he asked all of them Can I take you to lunch one day over the next couple months and get your advice on how I should proceed and see he proceeded from knowledge which then gave him the confidence to say, all right, I've got some money. I'm proceeding from knowledge. I'm listening. I'm not arrogant because I listened first. But then he had the confidence to take some risks. He bought the Dodgers baseball team. He's one of the only people to ha- he bought a whole bunch of movie theaters. He bought Starbucks. See, he proceeded from knowledge and that gave him the confidence. If you meet, met him, you would see he's a, he's a confident man. So is Michael Jordan. There's nothing wrong with a little confidence. You will bother some people and there's a time to tone it down a little bit. You gotta be smart, cause and effect. Don't be black and white uh, in how you think. Realize there's a time where you gotta tone it down a bit, but in general, it's okay to go, you know, I've worked this for 20 years. I've had five mentors. I've spent $100,000 in education and books and not, and, and listen to me, because I have some insight So when you're talking to your family or you're talking to employees, you can speak that way without being annoying. Now, what's the opposite of this? It's what I call American Idol syndrome. It's a term that I coined after watching American Idol a few times. And I usually just watch the funny, you know, the bloopers or the bad singers. But the thing that struck me when you first watch American Idol and you see people who cannot sing at all singing away, you have to think do these people even hear themselves and I, I actually think there's a syndrome where what they hear isn't what you and i hear and that that's pretty common when i was uh i used to be, teach salsa dancing when i own nightclubs and i saw some people they were completely on a beat like you know they were in step just to the wrong beat so the music and i think the music came into their ears just a little bit slower than most people so American Idol syndrome this delusion can be rooted in just some mental processes that you and I have It can be rooted in not having enough exposure to what a really good singer really sounds like It can be rooted in your parents patting you on the back and say oh You're so talented at singing so you never go out and do singing lessons and continue to refine your craft so for you You can't be like those American Idol people that think they're good and aren't because That's delusion and delusion would be effective if you and I were the only people on the planet. But you can't fool all the people all the time. If you're a bad singer, nobody's gonna buy your records unless it's like William Hung, you know, that guy on American Idol that was, people bought his records just because he was funny. But he didn't have a lasting music career can't fool people. People who have a lasting music career are either really good at singing or really entertaining or both. There's no exceptions to the rule. I know people think there are, but look around. Show me somebody, name one A-list musician who's not either a really good singer or really entertaining type performer or both. Some people bring up J-Lo. Well, she might not be the best singer, but she's entertaining, you know. Jessica, what's Britney Spears? May not be the best singer, but she's entertaining. She put on a show. She has talent. There's no non-tal, untalented, a-list, P- a people in the world. You can't fool all the people all the time. So when you have American Idol syndrome and you're delusional about your skills and talents, you, you might fool your mom. You might even with remember confidence. Sometimes overconfidence or what I call in this case the negative arrogance, arrogance actually will fool some people if I walk in a room and I go I'm the best singer and let's say I sing just mediocre if I've been sure enough about it there's I could exert my persuasive skills and some people would kinda overlook my bad singing be like yeah maybe he is good I've actually seen that uh, work before but it doesn't work on more than 10 or 20 percent of people so you don't want a strategy that only works on that because the other 90 percent is gonna boo you off the stage And that's what it is when it comes to health. If you're not healthy and you don't know what you're doing, admit it and go out like Michael Jordan, find the best teachers and listen to everything they say and proceed and then once you change your health, then you can look at people and say look, I was unhealthy and I, I learned through trial and error and through the experience of others how to get healthy. Let me show you what I learned. You can have a little swagger. You can have a little swagger in your step then, but you got to earn it. Like the Mark Owen said in this book, uh, No Hero, You know, everybody wants to be a SEAL on Friday when they're in the bar kicking back with their friends, telling them how they're a Navy SEAL. Nobody wants to be a Navy SEAL on Monday when you have to do the hard part. So that confidence comes after you do the hard part. You can tell your story to your friends after. So make sure you do that. Now, on the way to get there, do not be delusionally Aaron American Idol confident. Don't use arrogance as the tool to drive you forward. Some people do that. See, Michael Jordan didn't didn't do that. You know, he got cut from his high school basketball team, uh, I think, in his sophomore year, and he wasn't delusional about it. He's still mad about it now because he's a competitive guy. <laughs> but he used that as the fuel to drive him forward. He wasn't delusional and say, and he he admitted, I got, I you know. He obviously wasn't quite good enough to catch the coach's eye. He doesn't say, oh, I was a pro basketball player in my sophomore year and everybody overlooked me. No, he says he made a mistake. He says that about his coach, but he doesn't say I was the best. So if you're one of those people that start saying you're the best before you're the best, just nip it in the butt. It's annoying and it doesn't serve you as well. But what can say is you can have confidence to go, you know what, I don't know what I'm doing now, but I'm confident that if I I talked about this, if you haven't bought this No Hero book on my book of the day deal, you should get it. It should be on my site here. And I talk about it in the bonus videos you get. Because when you buy the books from me now, instead of just getting the books from the bookstore where you just get a book, you're getting bonus stuff, interviews sometimes with authors, speed reading, tricks, all this kind of stuff. But I talked about there, you know, if you've gone out and you've ridden, risen above what he calls you know, mediocre. He says you can't be a, media, a SEAL by just doing the status quo. That, that'll that just get you to be in the regular military. If you want to be special forces, we, do the, we rise above the mediocre. So until that day, you need to say stuff like, I am rising above, I'm doing stuff no one else is doing, and one day I believe this will pay off. You can show your faith. And I think the last point I want to make is displays of faith in the process are okay. Some people might be offended, but most people will see it as healthy confidence. So you go, look, I'm 100 pounds overweight, but I've read, I've been to some boot camps in health. I've talked to five of the best personal trainers and they all say, if I can do this, this, and this and stick with it for a year, I'm gonna revolutionize my body and that's how I'm proceeding. I don't think anyone will be offended by that. But nobody wants to be around somebody who's super overweight just saying, you know, well, you know, this is just temporary. I'm guaranteed to be in great shape. I'm just, everything I do touches to gold. No, you know, turns to gold. Don't be like that person. You'll actually, it's called tall poppy syndrome. Dr. David Buss talks about it in his textbook on evolutionary psychology. You actually end up, if if you cross the line confidence into arrogance, you end up with people militating against you. I mean, people will work to prove you wrong, they'll work to tear you down. It's a very common psychological uh, tendency for humans. In Scandinavia, they call it yontelogen, which is something like tall poppy. If you get too arrogant, society, others, people try to pull you down. So, below this, to close out this step, to unlock the next one, the first question I have for you is, what is an example of you being democratic in who you listen to, meaning you didn't listen to Alan Nation, you didn't find the one or two experts in the crowd, you listened a little bit piecemeal to every single person. Was an example of that and where it ended up messing up something you were trying to do? That's number one. Number two, uh, what is an example of you proceeding and going beyond Michael Jordan's swagger and confidence into the realm of delusion and arrogance, where you, you know, like I said, that one research said, just patting your kid on the back and telling them smart doesn't work. You should They say you should compliment kids on what they do after they did it. It's always easy to be a Navy SEAL on Friday, but nobody wants to do this stuff on Monday. So you compliment your kid on Friday after they did the stuff on Monday. You compliment yourself on Friday after you would put in the work on Monday. That's how the brain's set up anyway. So what's an example of you patting yourself on the back on Sunday, before you even started on Monday, instead of patting yourself on the back on Friday? What's something right now in your life? Thirdly, and lastly, uh, how are you going to proceed with knowledge? What is an area you need to go out and seek? Someone specific could be on be a better cook, how to be better in, in love, how to be happier. What is something you specifically need to dig deeper in so that uh, you can? gain true confidence, true swagger, and what's some practical steps you're going to do to get there, okay? So, thanks so much, and uh, fill these out. Make sure you're writing this also a little more in-depth on a private journal like Jeff Bezos from Amazon does. Fills up journals. That's something you can talk about, private stuff you don't want to put here. You should have your 67 steps journal, okay? All right. Well, I will see you on uh, the next step, hopefully. All right, bye. All right, welcome to the next in the 67 steps, the challenge, 67 day challenge. Hopefully you will complete this challenge. So uh, where we are, we're getting pretty far along. I hope you're beginning to see changes. I get lots of emails, lots of comments I see about people starting to notice changes from these principles of the greatest people in history all being downloaded into your brain. Uh, So today, to continue along this path, uh, we're gonna talk about something that, it's very interesting. I end up bringing this 67 step up a lot to people. In a lot of the seminars, when I talk, I just spoke at USC, and uh, this is a common theme that I see uh, people making a mistake. I see people that are doing really well in life following this, so what I call it is Why Jay-Z and Warren Buffett like baseball, okay? The ratcheting power of success. Uh, So here's how Benjamin Graham described or taught his pupil, Warren Buffett, who's as you have heard me talk about a lot, one of the wealthiest people uh, on our planet right now and one of the great investors in, in many ways great human beings in terms of, you know, there's no real scandals about him doing unethical stuff and I'm sure he's controversial. Anybody at that level is a little bit controversial but he's done pretty well and he was mentored by a guy named Benjamin Graham, who wrote quite a few books on the stock market. He was a, Benjamin Graham was a professor at Wharton and there's a good video you should check out sometime. It's uh, by Jay-Z, Warren Buffett, and Forbes, Steve Forbes, the, owner or the editor of Forbes magazine and Warren Buffett is talking about success and what his mentor taught him and he said what Benjamin Graham taught me was that you what you really want to do is not make a lot of mistakes in life now everywhere you go you're gonna hear somewhat opposite advice you're gonna hear people say you know you only learn by mistakes don't be afraid to make mistakes because that's how you gain experience and knowledge and just go out there and don't have fear because the worst thing, you make a mistake and you recover. Now, this is kind of a tricky subject because there is some truth to that. No human would be so foolish as to say, A, you never learn from mistakes. You surely learn from mistakes. Although, if your mistake was not looking both ways when you crossed the street and you got plowed into and killed by an 18-wheeler, I don't think you learned anything because you are dead or you're in too much pain and trauma to maybe ever recover. You're a vegetable in a permanent coma. So, you know, that advice, eh, if you use logical tools like arguing ad absurdum, you take it to its extreme. You can see lots of cases where learning from mistakes is a horrible thing to do. So, uh, you know, let's say that's so-so advice. There's truth to that. No one would deny, B, that you won't make mistakes in life. Warren Buffett in another talk said, you only learn from mistakes, which is true. That's a law of nature. Physics, I would say, a biology and human psychology, but there is no rule that they have to be your own. That's the whole reason you're in the 67 steps. That's the whole reason, hopefully you're reading a lot more. It's not that you don't need mistakes to learn from, you do, but Who said they have to be yours? Now, with that said, obviously, no matter how much you read and how many mentors you have and how many YouTube videos you watch and how many seminars you go to and advisors and apprenticeships and internships, you're still gonna make mistakes to err is human, right? That famous saying, to err is human, to forgive is divine. So, um, the word of caution I would give to that saying. Is that Charlie Munger says, you know, if you look back, me and Warren Buffett, we made a lot of business mistakes. We just made a heck of a lot less than most people. So when you're trying to be successful, mistakes is somewhat of a relative, on a relative scale. Meaning, yeah, you're gonna make, if you decide to become an entrepreneur, start your own business, if you decide to, to get in shape and start working out, if you decide to improve your social life, your, romance, friends, family, and your happiness, along the way in those experiments you set up, not all of them will go exactly as expected or as hoped for, but you know what? If you make less mistakes than 99% of all people, you're going to be doing great. It's a relative scale. So going back to the original talk, Jay-Z, Buffett, Steve Jobs are sitting there and. He said, he's repeating Benjamin Graham's words, what you really wanna do is not make a lot of mistakes. That's pretty accurate. So the new mindset that you should have is that you don't wanna make many mistakes on a relative scale. So that means if the average entrepreneur, who I read recently, average entrepreneur fails in business, or 80% fail within I think 18 to 36 months or something like that. So they make a lot of mistakes, so many mistakes, it's deadly to their entrepreneurial inspirational goal or inspiration. So what you wanna do is on a relative scale, if that person, the average entrepreneur makes 100 mistakes, which has an end result of them being out of business, then you should try to make only 20 mistakes. Now, how do you not make mistakes? And that's what we're talking about here. There's a lot of talk that we've been doing. A lot of these steps are on how to make mistakes, understand the cognitive biases, good uh, Pablo Picasso, good artist copy, great artist steal, mim- mimicking, modeling, mentoring, being humble like Walton, being alert, as we talked about, being worth you're worth a damn factor, the blue-footed booby bird, being adaptable. All of the things that you've been going through over these past days are all about reducing mistakes. So I want to introduce a new one Straight from the words of Warren Buffett, he said what Benjamin Graham told me. He didn't just leave me hanging and tell me not to make mistakes. He next said, Warren, what you want to do is hit hit a whole bunch of base hits. So depending on what country you're in, you may or may not have watched baseball before, but the way baseball works is pretty simple. You hit a ball, it's like a little bit like cricket, and you go around first base, second base, third base, and then home, and if you get to home, you score. So what a lot of people do in baseball, there was that guy uh, for the Dodgers, Manny Ramirez. He always wanted to be the hero. He'd get up to bat, he'd take that bat, and he was just waiting with it as hard. He wanted to hit as hard as he could every time, so he could hit the ball so far that he scored not just a first base, not just second, not just third, but he went all the way around because he wanted to be the hero. Now, there's a problem. When you swing with all your might, you either hit it or you completely miss. Your accuracy goes down because you're trying to increase the strength with which you hit uh, you know, the ball with. So you're like, uh, really wanting to hit hard. So when it comes to business, Benjamin Graham said, what you want to do is not try to go for the home runs. And this applies every facet of your life. This is, 67 Steps is not a business talk. This is about health, wealth, love, and happiness, the good life. I've got, you can, should be able to see some links for some of the other stuff, the Inner Circle, the Academy, you know, the, the, the uh, Investor Entrepreneur Mini MBA Academy. You can look for those stuff where I talk more about this, but I'm gonna give you a preview of a general principle. Swinging for home runs at every time, at every uh, available opportunity is a good way for you to end up in bad physical health, broke, lonely, and unhappy. That's the opposite of the good life. That's the bad life. That's what most people have. The life of quiet desperation that Thoreau talks about. So if you need to diet and exercise, what are most people gonna do? They're either gonna not exercise at all, or they're gonna go out. I just had a guy who works for me. He was really overweight. He comes, and I said, man, don't lift too heavy. I said, why don't you just start out walking every day for 30 days, and he's like, no, no, I'm gonna get in, and I'm gonna go, I'm gonna lose this weight, so he was going for a home run. And you know what happened? Pulled a back muscle. Then he couldn't work out for two months, so his health actually went down, because he was swinging for that big hit every time. And the media feeds into this. Advertising, you're not gonna see ads that say, lose a half a pound a month for the next 18 months. I mean, half a pound a week for the next 18 months. That's a good weight loss plan. It's better for more stable for your metabolism. Almost every doctor in the world would agree with that. I'm, there's obviously perceptions if you have an acute issue. I'm not a doctor. But you get my point. As Aesop's fable talk about, slow and steady wins the race is oftentimes the best course. So if your physical health, if you lost a half a pound a week, That is two pounds a month. For 18 months, you're 36 pounds lighter. Now, depending on how old you are, uh, you're probably 36 pounds overweight. Most Americans, most people all over the world. Now, you might be too skinny. Imagine if you could put on, you know, five pounds of weight of muscle a year. That doesn't sound like much, but five pounds of muscle in 18 months, you put on seven, eight pounds of muscle that people start noticing. And if you continue, like my dad worked out for 30 years and bought, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger from, he started around 14 by the time he's 21, 22, six, seven years. Now you've added 20, 30, 40 pounds of muscle. Now you don't even look like the same person anymore. And you've given your joints and your body time to catch up. Your metabolism is caught up. Your environment in terms of your wife, your husband, your family, they now slowly saw you make that transition. So they're not stocking the cabinet with junk food because they see the environment has changed and they've had time to a change with it. Uh, if it comes to business, you know, everyone comes to me, Ty, I have the next billion dollar idea. This guy wrote me a letter. Ty, well, can I take you to lunch? I have the next billion dollar idea. I wrote him back an email. I said, have you ever done a million dollar I business? He said, no, no, I haven't. I said, Well, I wrote him back again. Have you ever done a hundred thousand dollar business? No. I said, have you ever done a business that makes you a thousand bucks a month? No. And I said, well, I think you're too cocky and uh, bring me your thousand dollar a month plan to start a business and then I'll take you out to dinner. Because there are exceptions. Manny Ramirez did hit baseball, uh, did hit home runs in baseball. But you know, there's a lot of people, even taking sports analogy, Michael Jordan, considered the greatest basketball player, and the media shows you his dunks. You know, fascinating, awesome things. But if you look at Michael Jordan's career, he scored a tremendous amount of his points, especially later in his career, the majority, just taking simple shots, 15 to 18 foot jump shots. Even the great people follow this. Warren Buffett, he says sometimes it'll take him years to find a deal he wants to do, slow and steady. He says since the 19, I think 65 or so when he started Berkshire Hathaway to now, you're talking 40, 50 years. He said, I only needed 10 good decisions to get all the success that I have, but I need to make sure I didn't have any catastrophic ones. So the catastrophic ones undo all the good that you've done if you're not careful. Like the uh, uh, Sun Tzu says in The Art of War, he says, if you know yourself but not your enemy, for every battle you win, you will lose one. There's such a thing as one step forward and one step backwards. And that's what happens so often for people who do not understand what Benjamin Graham told Warren Buffett. What you want to do is just hit, a one base hit. So I now call this ratcheting. If you've ever used a tool that ratchets and then it locks in. So let's say you want to improve your health. So we're now forming new habits. We're not following the media. We're not following dumb ideas that were pushed down our heads by people trying to sell us something. We go, all right, how can I lose one pound? See, once you lose one pound or five pounds, some small amount, You've changed the momentum, and when the boulder is being pushed up the hill, the hardest part is getting a little momentum because if that ball rolls back even 10 feet on you, it's very hard with inertia to stop it. So the first thing you must do in every area of your life, health, wealth, love, and happiness, is stop the negative inertia. That in and of itself, even if you see no tangible gain There's a lot of gain. So if you're losing money every month, if you're spending more than you earn, the momentum, the ball is rolling down and you're trying to bring it up the hill, instead of you at least pushing it up a little bit, it's pushing down on you. Doesn't take too many times of a big boulder pulling down on you that you slip and fall and that thing runs you over. So the first step, stop the bleeding. If you are not healthy, the first step is at least stop gaining weight. At least stop losing muscle. At least stop being 100% sedentary. Get any kind of momentum remotely possible. Same thing with wealth. If you're going down, at least try to break even every month and make one dollar. If you do your QuickBooks and your little budgeting and you see your income, it's very easy. You should know your income. If you're lazy and you don't wanna put it in QuickBooks or something like that, go to your bank account, Bank of America or different banks. You go in there and you can print off your statement. It'll show you how much came in and how much came out. If it's negative, Generally, that's a bad sign. Stop the bleeding. If you're feeling lonely because you don't have a lot of friends, at least get out with the friends that you do have, the few friends you have. At least stop the bleeding and go. You can worry about making new friends later. If you are depressed, at least try to get to where you're like baseline. You're not really jumping for joy every moment, but you're not digging yourself in a hole and staying in a room longer and longer. That's that's first base. Okay, write that down. First base in baseball in terms of success in life is stopping the bleeding, reversing or I should say stopping the negative momentum. So if you think of it as levels, once you go up this level, you ratchet it up and it locks. That's the main thing. Lock it in. Don't go back. Now, once you've achieved that, you've locked that in, cha you're there. Here's you, you're just like an elevator. You're on the first floor now. You're not trying to go straight to the top. Lock it in so you can't go backwards. That's gonna entail a little bit of time. That's why as you finish the 67 steps, the next time frame for you is 18 months. So you can keep doing another 67 steps, another one. For those of you, I hope you're in the VIB program that I have uh, where, After the 67 steps, we continue on every other week, twice a month, going through. It's live calls with me. You can ask me questions personally. If you're not in that, make sure you email support and ask how to get in that. There might be a link here, depending on what page or if you're listening to audio. Get on that support at tylopez.com. Make sure you are getting, uh, because you're getting more, because the 67 steps, remember, is just the beginning of new habits. That's what was promised to you and you probably already seen some things if you're doing this diligently. But ratchet it up. Now what's first to second? First to second base is not just stopping the momentum, but a small amount of positive momentum. So if you're stopped the gaining weight, that stopped sitting around all day, 24 hours without exercising, to get to second base, once you've locked in and you've done it long enough, remember, you need some time. You don't just get there and lock it in. You need another maybe 67 days to go, all right, I'm not, I'm not weight, lo- losing weight, I'm not gaining weight. 67 days, lock that in it'll form a new habit. If you are uh, uh, stopping the bleeding financially, 67 days, just break even. Don't try to lose, don't try to gain. Just boom, get in that. It'll re-ratchet and rewire the neural pathways in your brain even at the DNA level, we know this. Like I said, read Inheritance by Dr. Sharon Mullen. A lot of cutting-edge science about how this stuff works when it comes to habits and mindsets. If you're unhappy, now with this, what's going from first to second base, try to make one random acquaintance. Try to make friends with the valet at your business or the, you know, the Starbucks cashier, somebody you see. Just try to strike up one small acquaintance, if you're unhappy and you've now ratcheted in first base, which is not being unhappy or happy, just being neutral, now try to have five minutes a day where maybe you think of all the things you're grateful for. I was just watching that movie uh, with Stephen Hawking, Theory of Everything. I walked out of there going, man, this guy had it tough. He had to solve the problems of the universe and couldn't even use 90% of his body. He had to blink his eye to write books. I'm like, Ty, you have it pretty good. Be grateful. Okay, I am grateful I can walk. I'm grateful that I can talk without, I'm grateful I don't have a tracheotomy. All these things that he had. Not that I am disparaging him because I'm not. I'm just saying keep your life in perspective here. So that's second base. You're not trying to be happy all the time. Just five minutes a day maybe. Okay? Okay. That's second base, some positive momentum. Now, when you've rounded that and you've locked that in for maybe another 67 days, now you're gonna go a little bit bigger. You're gonna try to get on third. Remember though, since you're not trying to go from home first, second, all the way to third, it's not gonna feel so hard. Most people quit changing their life for the better because it's too hard. It's too much inertia the other way, and now you're asking for too much energy to go all the way around the bases and hit a home run. It's too hard. So what you do is when you're a second base, though, you get a little more excited because now you're going to third, and third is where you're going to start getting other people noticing. That's where you're going to, you know, you're not just eating a little better. Now you're lifting a little bit of weight. You're starting to lose some stomach, uh, you know, some fat. People are starting to look at you and go, "Have you lost weight? Have you died? That's the second to third. That's where you start having some noticeable change from other people. And that's a great feeling. It's when you start making a little more money. You know, when you go out to eat, you're like the meal's on me. When you wanna take a trip with somebody, friend, family, loved one, you just, you pay. And they start to notice, Wow, well, maybe you got a little nicer car instead of Driving a junky car is dangerous. You, know, you got a little nice. Maybe your house—look, you got some new furniture. There's a little twinkle in your eye there when it comes to happy uh, happiness, because now you're not just grateful for five minutes a day. Now you know you got some good mood swings. You're starting to feel good uh, when it comes to n- people. Maybe you're out dating new people. If you've been—you know—you're single and you've been lonely. Now you're not just talking to the Starbucks waitress. You're actually on match.com or eHarmony or dating site. Uh, Maybe you've made some new friends. You've joined some social thing. Join some social stuff for business and friendship. I do. I'm a part of one here in LA, a couple of them. And I don't go that often, but I go. You know, Maybe from second to third base, maybe you're hosting some stuff at your house. I highly recommend that. It's great to be the host. So that's third base. And then do that for about 67 days. Don't let it ratchet up. You need time for the brain to catch up. We know this, University College London, r- recent cutting edge science. It, you can't rewire things too fast. You just can't do it. So don't try. <laughs> don't try to break the laws of nature and biology. So lastly, third, you're gonna get around third. Now it's not gonna be so hard to get home. What do you wanna do? Now we're gonna hit that goal that you originally set. You're gonna lose 35 pounds. You're gonna add two inches to your biceps. You're going to make at least financial independence, 75,000 to 150,000 a year. If you're already there, now try prosperity, 150 to a $1 million a year. Or now if you're already there at third base, you're now gonna go for the million plus. But you're gonna get out of financial scarcity and go to a new place that you've never been before. You're gonna be able to tangibly say, I met my goal and there's good research University uh, Princeton University talks about happiness comes from two things moment-by-moment happiness in the moment happiness but it was also something called memory happiness when you can look back and say yeah I pulled off my goals they weren't unrealistic they might have seemed unrealistic but I gave myself a realistic time frame see there's most goals aren't unrealistic given enough time. There are, you know, if I my goal was to fly like a bird, it's pretty unrealistic. Uh, I mean, I could get in a plane, but I'm saying to grow wings or something. That's a weird goal. You know, if your goal is to go from broken to be a billionaire, well, that seems unreasonable, but given enough time, it's probably possible. Enough focus. And even if you didn't quite get there, You'd make a heck of a lot more money than the average person same with your body not everybody can look like Arnold Schwarzenegger or you know the next Victoria's Secret model but I'll tell you this like Jim Rohn says almost everybody can do better than they're doing now all right you must follow that ratcheting you must lock it in must give it enough time and you must set a reasonable time frame the good news is once you score one run, guess what? Now it's time to go out there and do it again. And now positive momentum will be on your way. Maybe that boulder's now at the top of the hill and it'll start to get easier to push down. Now you could start to get excited. Excited, excited, I want you to get excited because now you get to do it again and it'll be easier and it'll be a little faster. And the next thing you know, it's like Warren Buffett said, you've scored a lot of goals and you know what? You haven't made too many mistakes on a relative scale. Your mistake factor is a tenth of the average person. You will have some mistakes. You will have some experiments you ran a little bit too long. But in the broad scheme of things, you will be head and shoulders above 99% uh, of those people who are struggling their whole life. So... I want you to answer a few questions. The first one, what is an example of you trying to hit a home run in health, wealth, love, business, uh, happiness, one of those, or more. You can do as many as you want. It's an example, and what was the end result of you going too fast, or maybe it was the right, or maybe it was an unrealistic goal, or maybe it was a goal that was realistic, but you needed more time, so your time frame was unrealistic. What's an example? Okay. What's an example now of something you want to change in your life, in either health, wealth, love, and happiness, how and write it right below in the second comment there. What is an example of how you're gonna break it up and do a first base hit, a second base hit, a third base hit, and a fourth base? I told you, gave you some examples in health and wealth how to do it and in happiness and love. What's your, give some practical, be as practical as possible. Write this also, of course, in your private journal. But think hard on something that you're gonna do, okay? Answer those two questions. Really put your heart into that second question. I want you to have an action plan that you begin slowly but surely. You can start immediately getting to first base. Start immediately, make haste slowly. So make haste, but do it in a reasonable time frame. Be quick, but don't be in a hurry. If you're in a hurry, you're gonna fall out of the baseline and you're gonna be out of the game. All right, so I hope that helped. And uh, excited, you're getting closer to the end. This is a 67 day challenge, 67 steps. So. I will see you uh, on the next uh, step. All right, talk to you soon. All right, welcome to the next in the 67 steps. This is the 67 day challenge. You're sticking with it. Stay to the end, keep going. Remember, it takes this long to re shape, remold the neural synapses and all those pathways and things we don't even understand. And I certainly don't understand about the human brain, but what I want to talk about today is something very relevant to every day of your life. Uh, Let me, I'm just going to grab one thing to show you. Yeah, I'll do it without it. All right. So I call this one... uh, Mastering the wrong things and blue eyeshadow shadow (laughs) numbnuts. The how and why of self-reliance. What I was gonna show you, uh, it's actually better that I don't show it now that I think about it, just because uh, it might distract you. For you and I, especially now in the modern world, we have to be self-reliant. I think that's obvious, um, you know, the old saying, to do something uh, right, you gotta do it yourself. Now, there's obviously uh, some negatives to trying to do everything yourself in the sense that you can't get a lot done. Uh, And if you could clone yourself and make a million of yourself, you'd be able to do a lot of stuff. So I think everybody's always either at the extreme. I, I bought a business and business partner's very big on delegating everything. Well, the problem is it's often delegating to people too early who don't know what they're doing and things become chaotic. I'm a little more of the school of do it yourself. Neither one of us is completely right. There's truth to both sides. So how do you get things done? And I think the first step is if you look at any industry, every, any sport, any art, the people who really get things done, who do things that pass the test of time, you want to do something with your life that passes. the passes the test of time. We talked about the funeral, you know, the greater funeral theory of knowing that you lived a good life if there's been enough reciprocal altruism that a lot of people would care and come to your funeral. And if you look at funerals, not to be morbid, the, the popular ones, the ones that make the world stand to attention and the flags go to half mass are masters. So more important than self-reliance is mastery. Mastery of yourself, mastery of your mind, mastery of your environment. Will Durant says in great part, this is what makes us humans, humans. We've learned to master at some level our environment. You're probably sleeping tonight in a house. That house is a way that you have mastered your environment And us as a human species has mastered germs at a certain level, we have done that. Uh, We have mastered at some level, you know, pregnancy and childbirth. Women used to die uh, at an extremely high rate just from pregnancy. That's been mastered. There's been mastery there. There's been mastery of your car can get you from point A to point B relatively safe and airplanes and all these things. Now, Self-reliance, whether you're like me, you tend to do stuff on your own or you wanna delegate like my business partner likes to do so that you can get stuff done, you're either gonna be a master or you must delegate to masters. This is the primary point of what I'm going to talk about. And then how do you achieve mastery? Well, the first thing, we're talked about this logical tool is a tool called inversion. If you wanna know how to do something, first figure out how to not do it. So if you want to be a master of something and figure out the path to mastery so that you can do it yourself and you can train other people to be master and have mastery of the things that you dedicate to them, well, guess what? You must know what you can't do. First thing you can't do is master the wrong thing. This is the most common thing in the world. By the time you become an adult, you've got multiple years doing something. I don't care if you're flipping burgers at McDonald's, you're learning how to deal with people, maybe at the cash register. You're still building mastery in something. Unfortunately, why nobody really aspires to be a McDonald's, uh, you know, master of the McDonald's behind the scenes kitchen is for most of us, that would be considered. If you got to the end of your life and you're like, you know what, I mastered how to hand somebody a hamburger, you would probably feel like your mastery was in the wrong thing. So if you're writing this down, the first rule of life mastery is in each area in health, wealth, love, and happiness. You have to master the right thing. And the best way to do that now, now we move to the second phase, is be very clear in understanding the problem. Alan Nation. So tell me, Ty, before you try to solve anything, before you try to become good at anything, You have to first understand why it is like it is now. So let's say you want to perfect your body. You want to become a master. You want to be in better shape. If you're a guy, you want to be around 10% or less body fat. Get rid of the gut. We know that that's a good goal. Make you live longer. Let you see your kids and grandchildren and friends. Let you contribute to society and contribute to your life longer. Okay, so that's a good goal. That's not mastering the wrong thing, but what if your goal when it comes to health is You see so much plastic surgery in the world and I'm not anti-plastic surgery, but sometimes people are mastering the wrong thing. Take a guy like Michael Jackson. He brought in, see he didn't do it himself, with all his plastic surgery he did on his face. He brought in other quote unquote masters, other doctors and surgeons that were good at stuff, but guess what? They were doing the wrong thing. The guy looked fine. He didn't need plastic surgery. He was fine looking. Michael Jackson, didn't have any problems with looks. I could understand plastic surgery if someone had, you know, there's been plastic surgery back ancient times. It's not a new phenomenon. People were doing nose jobs, they said, in the uh, Plains Indians in the United States, thousand years ago. So I'm not, you know, people have accidents, they need plastic surgery, and I'm not disparaging a whole industry. I'm saying, in the case of Michael Jackson, you'd probably agree. He mastered and brought in, delegated to masters who were just doing the wrong thing. I talked about this in an earlier 67 steps, but it bears repeating. You know, uh, There's a story, I don't know if it's true, a plane crashed in the middle of the rainforest and they were walking to the, uh, 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 they were trying to get out, right? They survived, 50 of them or whatever. There's a whole bunch of engineers and they had machetes and they said, we're gonna cut our way through the jungle and we're gonna find a village uh, that can call radio and bring in help and stuff. So these engineers, they knew how to sharpen the the, the uh, machete and they went out there and they chopped away and they got good at slicing at 45 degree. They had the technique all down pat, but one of them decided, and, he, and they ended up hating him, he climbed a tree and looked around and he got the philosophy and the direction and he said, hey guys, you're really, he yelled down, you guys are, cutting the wrong direction see that's mastering the wrong thing in michael jackson case when it came to his health he should have been focusing now it's not me to judge him but you know he ended up dying because he couldn't sleep he had some issues there it seems he should focus his attention on those things when it comes to wealth there's many people who get good at the wrong industry so there's a from in my family i won't say they they should have owned a restaurant. They should—they were an extrovert. They should have been around people. They didn't know themselves. They didn't go through this stuff. Some of you are in my, I've been just doing a talk for the entrepreneur school, you know, how to live the life, the life that everyone wants, how to live the dream, you know? And, uh, and he didn't have that direction, unfortunately. And so he just picked opportunistically what would make him money at 29. He ended up sitting in a cubicle till the day he retired and he's 60 and it's too late to do all those big things. As Joel said, mastering the wrong thing is a tragedy. When it comes to love, what about marrying the wrong person or dating the wrong person for a long period of time? So there you get good at a relationship with somebody that's not a good match for you. Now, you know, hopefully you can make it work. I'm not saying that it's cut and dry. I'm just saying we'd all agree it's better to put your life work in mastering a relationship with the right person, a friendship, a business partner, or else it's a lot more friction. And same with happiness. All of this applies. So you got to be someone who's able to take the big picture step back and figure out the philosophy of life. So when it comes to health, i talked about this that Nietzsche, I talked about in today's, if you're on my TV show now that I have the the book of the day TV, I talked about uh, Nietzsche's book. I think I actually have it here. I'll read you an interesting quote here if I have it. It's such a little book. Here it is man alone with himself, a compilation. He says, uh, it's all tattered. <laughs> Most people are obstinate about the path once it's taken, few people about the destination. So the next thing you must realize is you can't, on the path the mastery, to being sure you're not mastering the wrong thing. Don't be stubborn about the path. Those people with machetes were stubborn. They wanted to keep chopping, that direction when the help was that way. They weren't obstinate and stubborn about the goal. See, the goal should have been, we wanna get help for all of us who had this plane crash. We wanna get somebody in here to come save us. They forgot about that and got too enraptured with the machete and the progress they were making. You can't be stubborn. That's called the miss bias. You can be stubborn on the end goal. So if your health is the goal, then I want you to be stubborn about getting healthy. But I have a family member. He decided, he read somewhere you should only eat fruit. So he started eating 9, 10 bananas. He was almost a pro athlete or pro athlete in my family. And, you know, at first I thought it was a great experiment. Then I started noticing his skin didn't look good. His breath smelled or something off. His muscle tone started going away. And I was like, what's your goal here, man? And he's like, well, I want to, you know, increase my athleticism, become even better in my sport, and, and um, I said, well, why are you doing fruitarian? He's like, well, I read about this, and I believe in this, and monkeys eat bananas, and their gorillas are strong, and blah, 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 and I said, well, but I did some research. I talked to my friend as a doctor, and he said he's treated many vegetarians over his life, and every one of them, he said, didn't, their health degraded. And I said, well, why don't you try a different experiment? Why don't you try vegan, or vegetarian, or paleo, or macrobiotic, or raw, or whatever. Like, keep experimenting your goal is fulfilled. That's what Nietzsche's saying. But no, sure enough, the commitment consistency bias, the ego came in and he defended his position and just kept going down in health. Why? Why wouldn't he be stubborn about, hey, no matter what, I'm not going to get any anything stop me from improving my health as an athlete. This banana thing isn't working. Let me ditch it and move on to the next thing. So the next thing, takeaway for you is you have to be flexible in the experiments and the means with which you're trying to get to business. If you're in business or you work for somebody else and you're trying to get a promotion to move up the chain, uh, set up an experiment, but don't be obstinate in that little experiment. As soon as it shows it doesn't work, kill it and move on to another experiment. If Edison needed a thousand experiments to get to his next patent, then what's wrong with you and I needing a thousand different tries on diet and exercise? Why not try a thousand different business angles? Now, hopefully it won't take you a thousand. That's a little much unless you're, you know, inventing light bulbs and something. You probably don't need to date one thousand people before you get married or, you know, before you get a business partner, you probably don't need to have a thousand meetings. You don't need to try a thousand different things to be happy. Freud says clearly in Civilization is Discontents, which I believe is his best work ever. Maybe the greatest piece of writing in a few pages I've ever read. He says, you know, you have to know your constitution and you have to experiment with those things that make you happy. He names like nine things. You know, some people become happy through art. Some people through aesthetics and beauty. Some people through love. Some people... Through chemicals, he said, you know, alcohol, coffee, maybe for you. Some people through religion, some people through detachment from society and over. And he he says, each of these have their strengths and weaknesses. Now, society, you're going to meet people very vehement and very uh, adamant that their way is right, that you should just meditate and that's all you need to be happy. Oh, you should just find love. That's all, all love's all you need. Or you should just make a lot of money. That'll make your all problems solve away. Oh, you just need to get shape. You'll get enough dopamine from jogging. You'll get a rush. Just understand that Freud was right a hundred years ago. There is no one thing. He says a good businessman would not put all his investments in one tiny thing. He might diversify a bit for safety. Now you could over-diversify, but you can also under-diversify. You know, Warren Buffett isn't all over the place, but he does have some variety in his investments around all those central themes. That's for the business talk. If you're not in my uh, entrepreneur, uh, mini MBA, investor entrepreneur, all that academy that I have, uh, you might want to get into that. I talk a lot about that for business, but for this talk, you know, I'm focusing more on life in general. Just so you know, the 67 steps is life in general, health, wealth, love, and happiness. I don't focus particularly only on one. So, as you're doing these things that we talked about now, as I said, you're gonna need some help. Maybe if you're doing personal, uh you're doing health or business, you have a business partner business, maybe you have a personal trainer, maybe in love, you know, you'll have a friend who a wingman who helps you meet people and things like that. And maybe in happiness, you have a psychologist, a therapist, a priest, a pastor. What you want to avoid as you go towards mastering things, mastering your own life and those. Four pillars of life you want to avoid what I call blue eyeshadow numb nuts so when I was working in finance and GE and spun off my own company there with a business partner I met this guy named Chuck and he had been in business 60 years in our industry he was about 70 or 80 years old and he said Ty because I said he was an independent broker we could do some deals with him I said why should I do it with you he said well the reason you pay me a little higher commission to do business and finance with me, Ty, is I get things done. I'm a master. If you wanna go call some bureaucratic group sales company that will help you and talk to some, he called it blue, someone with a little, he, now this sounds sexist, but I'm just giving you his quote. He said, you wanna to talk to some inexperienced person wearing blue eyeshadow?" He said, you go ahead. When you wanna call a master and get things done, you call me and sure enough, I closed uh, one of my first big commission deals in finance. I think I made whatever we, the commission was one or $200,000 and I wouldn't have gotten that deal without him. So as you reach out, make sure you're in, the point of blue eyeshadow, it's not a disparage, people wear blue eyeshadow. It's his way of saying, do you want someone inexperienced or you want somebody with some bags under their eyes, some scars in their face, some gray hair. You know, that there's that proverb, gray hair is a crown. Meaning it's, hey, I've made it. I'm still here. I've survived. So my, ex- my advice to you, as you bring in other people to help you master it, whether they be a piano teacher, uh, a business coach, someone who's helping you personal training, a therapist, make sure they've got some years in the thing. Make sure they've got some experience. If they don't, You may want to use them, but you may want to trust a little bit less in their data. There's an old saying Allen Nation used to tell me, Ty, you don't want to be the first or the last to try something new. Meaning, if there's a new doctor in town who's got some new technique, you probably don't want to be his first surgery patient. Let somebody else be the first, right? As the old uh, Yiddish saying goes, um, the young doctor fattens the graveyard and And Your path to mastering things as you realize you can't do it all yourself You will have experts working with you bring those people in That have a little bit of knowledge and understand that the last part in this title of this 67 step is the num nut factor You know there's that old saying fool me once shame on you fool me twice shame on me that basically means if you go out and you work with some personal trainer, or some business coach that gives you bad advice, okay, that's your sign you may want to move on from them. And if you stay with them, because that they're a numbnut. Numb nut means kind of they're not that good. They're not that experienced. They're kind of bad at their business. So the first time, that's part of the experiment. The key is you never become the numbnut. You become the numbnut when you continue to trust somebody who hasn't exper- uh, exhibited mastery in what they do. Then it's no longer them being dumb. Then it's you. You know, I had this this uh, uh, maintenance guy come fix some stuff in my house. And he, and he clearly, I don't know why he called himself a maintenance man. He didn't know anything. I knew more than him. And I've learned in the past, I might be like, let me give the guy this extra chance. Well, it's not a chance in life. It's not like I'm cut off, but I don't, didn't bring him back because the first time it was just him. I was like, this guy's a numbna. I've entrusted something important to me. I think he was fixing a lock in my house. To some of you clear, I was no mastery. And I was tempted, I don't know why our brain is tempted to give people a second chance in that area. Again, if it's a family member or close friend and they mess up something small, you can give people a second chance. That's not what I'm saying. But in that case, it was just a vendor. I didn't know him. There's lots of maintenance people. And a little tendency there was like, I'm gonna give this guy another chance. Then I was like, why Ty? Because then if he messes up, then you're the fool. You're the numbnut. And I don't wanna be that. Anytime in life I turn out to be the numbnut, the fool, I regret it. I don't regret experiments that turn don't work out because they're simply experiments, right? You must know how to master the right thing, with the balance of doing it yourself, and bringing in experienced people to help you. Not blue eyeshadow people, not people who exhibit numbnut traits. trait. I, you know a good rule of thumb: if you're hiring people, uh, whether it be a maid, a weight, you know, a, someone to. Uh, build your house, a mechanic. If they're not good the very first time, just move on. It's kind of like in sports. If you lose as a coach, they pretty much fire you and move on. Not because, because it might not be your fault, it might be the bad day or a bad season or a key player got hurt, but you know what? Statistically, it's better to cut your losses and move on. And a lot of people who have been successful, one of my friends, the most successful one of the most successful guys I know he's made an incredible lot of money on the internet he sold a company before he's 30 for about 250 million dollars he told me he's like ty I hire fast and fire fast he's like I like to fire at the beginning that way I don't build them up and they quit their other job or they don't get you know momentum and then it's harder to get rid of them later so on your path to surround yourself with masters you obviously need to be a little bit patient you need to have a little bit of understanding but don't run the experiment too long okay but remember and that's what i'll say in closing only masters are remembered it doesn't mean you must be the next einstein you must be the next freud not all of us i certainly don't have that capacity that einstein had or freud or these people but you know what i can make my mark in one specific area. And Peter Thiel, I was reading this book, I'll read this, I was reading this in the business school. Some of you in the academy will hear this twice, but that's okay. The great Peter Thiel investor, he says, page 53 in his new book, he made, you know, started PayPal and founding investor, I think, in Facebook and some of these big companies. He said, uh, start small and monopolize. Every startup is small at the start. Every monopoly dominates a large share of its market. He recommends you build a monopoly, like a very focused thing that you're good at, that you control. He said, always err on the side of starting too small. The reason is simple. It's easier to dominate a small market than a large one. If you think your initial market might be too big, it almost certainly is. I bet you you're like me. You're not the next Leonardo da Vinci—that's good at biology and medicine and architecture and art and painting. I can't do all those things, but you know what? Like Peter Thiel said, I can have a monopoly on a very small thing. Maybe it's a small business idea, maybe it's a certain way uh, that you have. Maybe it's playing piano or writing or art or acting. I don't care what it is. Find that thing, and I call this. Some of you have been to my in-person seminars. I call this the Law of Five Percent. Which means in the modern world, 7 billion people, if on a scale of one to 100, 100 being the best, you can't be an 80. You won't stand out. You can't even be an 85. You gotta get to the last five points. You gotta be a 95, 96, 97, 98, or 100. You and I cannot be 100 in many things. It's not possible. Not in a world of 7 billion people where you have aerospace engineers and you have, you know, Scuba, John, or Cousteau, who is a master of going under the ocean and studying marine biology. You have astrophysicists and you have Dr. Phil, psychologists, and you have great actors and speakers, everybody a master in their thing. There is nobody. There are no Leonardo da Vinci's anymore. It's too complicated of a world. So you dominate that one space. You create massive mastery. And as we continue through this 67 day challenge, 67 steps, as you focus that down, And the world shrinks down, as the Navy SEAL Mark Owen talks about in his book, No Hero. He was climbing a rock wall in SEAL training and almost fell off. And an instructor came up and said, Mark, focus on the three-foot world around you. If you start looking down a thousand feet, you're going to fall. Just focus on getting to the next handhold, the next one. That's what you do to create mastery. He'll do it with some help. He had an instructor who was a master. He said he had all these ropes to climb up this thing and when the instructor was down at the bottom, saw him falling, you know, about to fall, he said the instructor just crawled to the top with almost no ropes because he was a master. He wasn't wearing blue eyeshadow. He wasn't, you know, an inexperienced newbie. His instructor was a master and brought him mastery, okay? So, a few questions. I want you to close this out. Write it in your private journal but also write it here for the community. All right, you're part of a growing, amazing community. You'll find friends, allies, maybe husbands and wives, uh, you know, business partners, even investors. There's billionaires in here, all the way down to people in, you know, credit card debt just starting out. So leave these comments. Number one, where is an example where you have been a master in the wrong thing? Maybe it's something in health. You became a master at, you know, Fruitarian diet and then realized that diet didn't work for you. What's an example of something you were a master in the wrong thing? Number two, where's an example of some uh, of a time when you trusted someone who did not have the experience, no matter how good heart their heart was, they did not have the experience to warrant the amount of trust you gave them? What's What happened? Tell me. Then number three, what's an example where you should have moved on because they were a numbnut but you kept with them and it turned you into the numbnut or the joke was played on you, okay? And what are you gonna do different? How are you gonna move a little quicker? How are you gonna recognize this a little different? And fourth question, what are you gonna make your mark in in the world? Like Peter Thiel says, I don't care if it's teeny or large, what are you gonna get to the top 5%, 95, 96, 97th, 98th, 99th, or 100 percentile. What's the thing you can have that level of mastery in? Okay, fill that out, write it in your private journal, and uh, there's an important one to remember mastery. All right? and right, I'll see you on the next 60, uh, the 67 day challenge, next 67 step. All right, talk to you soon.